Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Great to be back here. Uh, by now, most of you have probably heard of this story regarding Clarence Thomas and his wife, Ginny Thomas. Ginny Thomas is, in addition to being the wife of Clarence Thomas, she is a longtime conservative activist. She knows everybody in Washington, D.C., conservative circles. And it came out at the end of last week that she had sent a number of text messages to President Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows. And it basically, I won't go through all these, but basically she texted Meadows all about not giving up the fight of the election, not conceding, um, things like do not concede. It takes time for the army who was gathering for his back uh, and she's going on and on and on about how the Trump team should be contesting these elections. And it's clear if you if you read these text messages that she believes that the election was stolen and that she wants the Trump team to pursue every avenue available to them regarding how to stop that. Now, the question has become. Does that mean her husband should recuse himself from cases involving January 6th? And should he have previously recused himself from cases involving uh, the 2020 election? Because to date, he hasn't. You remember there was a very serious Supreme Court challenge uh, challenging what happened in Pennsylvania, specifically the role of mail-in ballots and whether or not it was appropriate for the courts in Pennsylvania rather than the state legislature to sort of change the rules about mail-in ballots and to uh, rule on when mail-in ballots could be accepted after the election in Pennsylvania. So uh, Clarence Thomas, there were in order to in order for the Supreme Court to hear a case. Four of the nine justices have to agree to hear it. In the case of that Pennsylvania decision, which was the one that had the best chance of getting heard by the Supreme Court, three of the justices agreed to hear it, but that was not enough to hear it. The other six didn't want to hear it. And Clarence Thomas said at the time, he basically excoriated his colleagues for not wanting to hear these cases. And he said, you know, we should hear it. And he made a pretty compelling case. If you read what he said at the time... As to why they should be uh, why should be heard. He said things like, look, this issue of mail in ballots is not going away. We're going to have to rule on this. We're going to have to look into uniform standards. And he said a lot of other things, but he seriously took issue with what his colleagues were were saying at the time. 
in my view, and now this is also an issue because the very issue of the January 6th committee and the subpoenas and the information they wanted, that's actually been heard, um, you know, by the courts. And the Supreme Court has even had to weigh in on this, namely about documents and documents in this context can include text messages and so forth. Documents related to what the January 6th committee was investigating should be shielded. Trump and several Trump supporters wanted to shield a lot of these documents. Now, they lost that in the Supreme Court. Who was one of the justices that dissented? Clarence Thomas. And it's left the question open as to whether or not going forward, um, Clarence Thomas ought to recuse himself. In my view, he should have previously, and he should going forward. Um, and I recognize that we're not all responsible for what our spouses say. However, when you're on the Supreme Court, you almost have to be like Caesar's wife, totally above suspicion, uh, totally above reproach. There can't even be an appearance of impropriety. The other issue is Supreme Court justices recuse themselves all the time. I think Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, has recused himself in something like 30 cases, maybe more, because it dealt with companies that he had stock in. Uh, Justice Breyer and Sam Alito frequently recuse themselves because of familial ties. Breyer's brother, I believe, is a federal judge, and uh, Alito has a, a, a uh, has a has a brother who, who no excuse me a sister who's a partner at a major law firm that has some litigation coming before the Supreme Court from time to time. Um, sometimes they'll recuse themselves from that. Elena Kagan she recused herself from a whole bunch of cases because of her previous work. She had she had ordered she had argued some cases before the Supreme Court. Previously, so there's nothing wrong with recusing yourself because of familial ties. I remember my wife is a journalist and she used to cover politics in the community that I live in. And I happen to be I happen to be involved in every political race. And several of the people that run for office and are involved in politics and elected officials on Staten Island are friends of mine. And my wife was actually, and I thought this was terribly unfair at the time, my wife was prohibited from covering races where any of the candidates that she was covering were friends of mine. And my view was, look, if she's biased, she's biased no matter what. It has nothing to do with my relationship with someone. And as long as, um, as, long as she discloses our relationship, then I think that that's fine. But her employer felt differently. I think when it comes to the Supreme Court, there would have been nothing wrong with Clarence Thomas recusing himself. Many of you, I know, disagree. If you want to comment, now's the time to be heard. 
WABC. Someone now I hate that this has become such a partisan matter, but uh, unfortunately, we live in 2021 America or 2022 America. These days now, everything is partisan and it's so predictable. And it just I'd love to be surprised, you know, and unfortunately, what I've seen is all the Democrats who don't like Clarence Thomas to begin with. They're all jumping on this saying Clarence Thomas should recuse going forward. He should have recused previously. And um, all the Republicans who do like Clarence Thomas to begin with, they're all jumping to his defense saying, no, he shouldn't have recused and he shouldn't recuse going forward. Amy Klobuchar, for instance, uh, the former Democratic presidential candidate, senator from Minnesota. She was on ABC's This Week. She said this. You have the wife of a sitting Supreme Court justice advocating for an insurrection, advocating for overturning a legal election to the sitting president's chief of staff. And she also knows this election, these cases are going to come before her husband. This is a textbook case for removing him, recusing him from these decisions. Now, um, putting aside the hyperbole there, there's a lot of people that feel that way. Now, whether you're a Clarence Thomas fan or a detractor, tell me what you think. Should he recuse himself from cases involving January 6th and the January 6th committee going forward, because it does look I mean, we don't know this for sure, but there is a possibility that some of the documents that the uh, that the Trump people were trying to not turn over to the January 6th committee could have included these text messages from Ginny Tonimus. So. Tell me what you think. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Is there audio of this? Is that why you handed that to me, Philippe? No, okay. All right, well, I have the article. All right. Now, one of the reasons, I will take your calls, and Jennifer, I know you um, wanted to call in yesterday or the previous day, and we didn't get to you, so I don't blame you for being frustrated. We're going to get to you first. But this dovetails with another fascinating subject. And the reason that I have sort of Clarence Thomas on the brain today is because I remember when Clarence Thomas wrote his book, he wrote extensively about the role. And this is going back 16 years. It's actually a great book, by the way, whether or not you like Clarence Thomas's judicial philosophy or not. It's a really it's a book worth reading. He's got a pretty compelling biography and certainly has been through a lot as well. But um, it's called uh, My Grandfather's Son. You should check it out. It's a really interesting book. But what Clarence Thomas said in this book is that he became he went to Yale. He got into Yale, according to him, because of affirmative action. He wrote in his book. I asked Yale to take that fact, his race, into account when I applied, not thinking that there might be anything wrong with doing so. But Thomas said that after he graduated from Yale, he went on several job interviews with one high-priced lawyer after another, and the attorneys treated him dismissively. Many asked pointed questions, unsubtly suggesting that they doubted I was as smart as my grades indicated. The fact that he couldn't get a job after graduating from Yale would shape his thoughts on affirmative action program for years to come. Thomas wrote at the time, now I knew what a law degree from Yale was worth 
when it bore the taint of racial preference. I was humiliated and desperate. And he has said previously, I don't know what his current philosophy is when hiring clerks, that he doesn't even like to look at the Ivy League clerks, which is a nice change from the Supreme Court, who they usually, uh, uh, people who are conservative on the court and people who are liberal, they have been, um, they usually bump the Ivy League people right to the top of the list, not Clarence Thomas, because he views that a law degree from an Ivy League school for a minority means a lot less, a lot less. That's his words, his words. You could read the book. It's in the book. And uh, we worked on finding some audio, but it was, oh, it's been a while since he spoke publicly about this. He's not like Scalia that does all these big speeches and everything. So it's a little harder to find audio of him. He's done some, but we couldn't find that. Now, the reason this is significant, and those of you that want to comment on the recusal thing, um, we're going to get to you in just a moment. But the reason this is significant is because of a measure the National Football League enacted yesterday. And I have to tell you, and uh, look, I would agree with you if you said there should be more black coaches, more black general managers, when you're dealing with players that are, I, I think, 70% black, I, I can't argue with that. But this measure enacted by the National Football League on Monday is a total joke. The NFL enacted measures on Monday, including a requirement that each team have a minority assistant coach in a significant role on its offensive staff. The league also appointed a committee of outside advisors to assist its minority hiring efforts and approved a resolution endorsing diversity in franchise ownership. Now, I I have no issue with a committee making recommendations, no issue with trying to recruit more minority coaches. My issue is with the fact that this rule mandates that these teams have to hire a minority assistant coach on their offensive staff. Now, let me ask you a question. Let's say you're a a, a college football coach that has a great deal of success at the college level and some NFL team that's been struggling, that's been middling for years, wants to hire you. And you want to bring your coaching staff with you from that college team that you've been coaching. And it happens to be an all-white offensive coach, uh, offensive staff. You can't do it because you have to hire a minority. This is ridiculous. And it's totally unfair, not only to the head coaches, not only to the players. And I'll explain why in a second. But it's unfair to these minority assistant coaches because now what this is going to do going forward is every assistant coach on the offensive staff of every NFL team going forward, people are going to ask the question every time he's seen on the sidelines, every time he's seen in the clubhouse. Every time there's a play that goes wrong, because football fans love to question everything anyway, people are going to ask the question, is he only there because he's black 
or is he there because he's the most qualified person for that position? And it's it's unfair to those people. It's unfair to people that could get jobs on the merits as assistant coaches. Look, a lot of these franchise owners, a lot of these coaches, their priority is one thing, winning. Winning. I, I, I won't dispute that groupthink comes into account from time to time. And that's why I don't have an issue with people making more efforts to recruit minorities in football. Great. That's great. But I think these coaches want to win, and they want to hire the best coaches. And now you're going to have a situation where two things happen. One, people that wouldn't have gotten jobs in as assistant coaches in the NFL and may not be as skilled as someone else for that same job are going to have jobs, and that's going to hurt that team. And two, two, people are going to question every assistant coach in the NFL who happens to be black. And you know who that includes? The players. The players. You know, when I was – look, I recognize youth sports is a lot different from – uh, the NFL, and these are professional athletes who in some cases make millions of dollars. But when I was in my youth, my parents made clear to me that I should do, when it came to instruction, whatever the coach said, and that I was to have respect for the role of a sporting coach. And within reason, whatever that coach said, that's what I was to do. Now, picture a player that has to work with a minority assistant coach, a player of any ethnicity, by the way. And that player doesn't agree with that particular um, assistant coach's view of something. It could be, oh, you want to run a West Coast offense instead of a an East Coast offense. Could be whatever. This is totally going to undermine the internal harmony of the team. I think this is a huge mistake for some of the reasons that Clarence Thomas doesn't trust minorities who graduate from Ivy League law schools. What say you? You can comment on the issue of recusal if you want. You can comment on this new rule by the NFL if you want. 800-848-WABC. That's 800 848 Nine two two two. Robert is in Philadelphia. Hello, Robert. Hey, good to talk to you, Frank. Thanks. Likewise. Uh, just to um, just for context, you know, I'm a big Trump supporter, a big admirer of Clarence Thomas's um, judicial temperament, and I think the January sixth commission is a complete farce, obscene. But right. Same. You're right. You're right. He should recuse himself. It's not a typical wife making statements showing her allegiance. This is somebody who was kind of actually involved in this non-crime, and I can see why he would have to recuse himself. And the fact that you highlighted previous judges on both sides that have done this and is one of the reasons why I know you're not the flaming liberal and it's you got integrity, and I really appreciate that. I just wanted to put in my two cents, man. Have a good night. Uh, thanks, Robert. Appreciate it. 800-848-9222. Jennifer's in Boston. Jennifer, I know um, you called in yesterday, and we didn't get to you. I'm sorry about that. Oh, that's okay. Frank, tell me why you think Thomas should recuse himself. I didn't hear you say it. Well, because, because of uh, clearly – 
it, his wife was Valentina. discussing strategy with one of the key participants in this, Mark Meadows. About, about fighting for the election. Um, she wasn't fighting to overturn it. She was making sure that it was investigated because she thought it might have been stolen, which millions of people thought. So how do we know what all of the the only reason we know that she's a private citizen, right? Right. And her email was leaked, right? Uh, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which I I certainly have a big problem with. Absolutely. Okay, And it's selective what they're leaking. right? I mean, come on. That's true. That's true. Did it. We know why they did it. And I think not just no, but hell no, he should not. And Frank, we have no idea what other people's partners, spouses, sisters, best friends think. We have no idea of their communications when Hillary lost in 16. We have any idea of anything that went on with any of the Supreme Court uh, liberal justices? No, because there's no leakage of what was going That's on. That's true. That's all and, true. And, and if, if I could say one other thing. Yeah, say whatever you want. Yeah. Regarding the um, Pennsylvania elections and... Um, you know, that would have been a really big case if it had been accepted. Maybe he should have recused himself from that. Why? What Mark Elias did was wrong. It never should have been allowed on behalf of the DNC. He went down there and against state law, the, the you know, the courts put through something that only the state legislature, according to their constitution, should have been allowed to. So why should, why the Supreme Court didn't take it up? I think it's cowardice. I think it's about not wanting to be set upon by the by the mob. Well, let me, let me ask you this, Jennifer. Let's say one of the documents that they were fighting not to turn over to the January 6th committee under subpoena was mm-hmm. these text message exchanges with um, Mark Meadows and Jimmy Ginny Thomas. Is that mm-hmm. an instance where you think Clarence Thomas should have recused himself? Absolutely not. Frank, even though it's his me- wife, even though it's his wife. Well, what do we know about, all right, I don't know if Kagan or Sotomayor are married. Do we know anything that their partners talk about with other people at election time? Like I said, say when Clinton lost in 16, do we have any idea? Um, no, no, well, no, I don't think Kagan, I, I know Sotomayor is not I, married. I don't think Kagan well, is either, but saying. yeah, so exactly. It could any be anybody. Of the people right. who are, you're talking familial, right? So let's say it's a, you know. Yeah, ma- brother, make it uh, Justice Breyer if you want. Sure. Okay, well, there you go. Do we have any idea who reached out to him, what they said? Not even to him. I mean, you know, his right, family his, member, his right, wife. Sure. We don't know. And they, they put this out intentionally, Fred. And they are, to me, this is this is literally in the same thing. And I wish you would do a show. Um, there's a woman that wrote a book. I think her name is Julie Kelly. I'm not 100%. But she wrote a book on the people sitting in jails in Washington, D.C. I think the book is actually called January 6th. And I've heard her speak. Uh, no, no, Julie Flynn, I think is her name. And um, those are political prisoners, Frank. I mean, there have been suicides in there of these people. They're just sitting there rotting. Uh, Gitmo prisoners are treated better, Frank. Uh, well, I mean, really? again, I, I don't disagree with that. I think we are a little bit off the subject of the Clarence Thomas recusal. Yeah, but I really, I, you're a very good interviewer. I wish you'd have her on and look at her book. If you yeah, book. Uh, well, who was it again? Just t- tell me where he's sick. The book is called January 6th, um, and I think it's called, I think her name is Julie Flynn. I'm going off of memory. And okay, I, I will look it up, and I will invite her on the show, actually, and, uh, Jennifer. Thank you. Like a, and I really appreciate letting me speak, because I think this is disgraceful. Absolutely. I felt bad we didn't get to you yesterday, and uh, you're definitely owed some time. Uh, definitely would love your take on the 
situation involving this new NFL rule. Um, Philippe messages me that a league record 15 minorities are among the NFL's 32 defensive coordinators for 2022, according to league data. So overall, minority coaches now make up 39% of the league total, up from 35% in 2021. There's also a league record 12 women on coaching staff. So, I mean, assuming those numbers are accurate and uh, going forward, Philippe, who's been doing a great job uh, in Formali last week and this week, if you can include always sourcing, you know, for for that stuff. But we'll take assume that he's done his research and that this is according to league data. So be it. But um, I think this shows that this new Rooney rule part two is not needed. 800-848-9222. Dean in Jersey City. What say you? Uh, Frank, good morning. I just want to know if you feel the same way about the vice president being a, given the position because she was black and a woman that you feel about the NFL. Uh, so, look, I think – so, no, I don't, and I'll tell you why. I think if a, a coach or a general manager or an owner – wants to hire a an assistant coach because they're black uh because they think that'll uh increase the 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 harmony the racial harmony in the clubhouse more power to them if they think that's going to attract more fans more power to them what i don't like is a team being forced to so if joe biden wants to pick someone because they're black fine pick them or her um but what i would not what i would have a real problem with is if the DNC or the RNC were to pass a rule saying that a presidential candidate had to pick a minority as their president or vice president, you see the difference? Yeah, but he was still he was forced he he was he he was forced by Clyburn to do what he did, or he wasn't going to get the support of all the black people in this country. So that was this. It's almost the same thing as you're talking about. Well, I don't know that it is. One is a political deal that that you make, and one is a rule that you're not allowed to violate. But you're still not picking for the best person for the job. You're picking on the skin color. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I, I think the, the the electoral politics are a little different, just because you always pick somebody as your vice president that you think is going to help you win. Right. So uh, whatever that is, sometimes it's based on age. Sometimes it's based on region. Sometimes it's based on ideology. Sometimes it's based on experience. So you pick someone that's going to add uh, to the ticket. So um, give me your take on this this NFL rule, though, Dean. Uh, I really don't have an opinion. You know, it's 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 what they're doing to try to get the sales, I guess, to put more people in the audience, to put more people in the seats. Well, NFL had a good year last year. I, I'm not sure. They needed um, a rule like this. Tell me what you think. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Now, it is interesting. I, I don't know how I missed this. I, I imagine I heard about it at the, at the time that it was announced. But speaking of football, do you realize there's a new football team, a new football league that's coming out? Not the XFL, but the USFL. And it's starting April 16th. I'm going to watch this. They have, I'm going to at least watch the first week. They have the Birmingham, excuse me, the Birmingham Stallions take on the New Jersey Generals on the USFL's inaugural kickoff game on January 16th. But here's what's interesting. Just announced this week. They have a few they've unveiled a few changes to these traditional football rules. 
designed to bolster offense and big play potential, they're going to have an option for a three-point conversion. So um, when teams score a touchdown in the USFL, they'll have the option to attempt a one, two, or even three-point conversion. So you'll receive one point for a kick made with the ball snapped from the 15-yard line, two points from for a scrimmage play from the two-yard line that successfully crosses the goal line, and three points for a scrimmage play from the 10-yard line that successfully crosses the goal line. As a result, a team trailing by nine points can still tie the game with a touchdown and a three-point conversion. Uh, so I think that's I think that's pretty neat. And there's some other rule changes as uh, as well. Overtime, for instance, is going to be a shootout in which uh, each team's offense will alternate between the opposing teams from the uh, two yard line. So I think this is a pretty exciting. You know, most of these these alternative football leagues have not done well. One of the few that did was the original USFL. Donald Trump was an owner of that team. He owned the uh, the New Jersey team in that league. But I'm looking forward to watching this, for at least the first game, and we'll see how it goes, see if there is a, an opportunity for things to take off. Nothing wrong with a little, uh, little competition. By the way, um, speaking of competition and monopolies, we've covered before how baseball is a monopoly. It's got an antitrust exemption. And Bernie Sanders told uh, Bryant Gumbel on Real Sports on HBO that he's got a bill that is going to be challenging baseball's antitrust exemption. I say good luck to you. I hope he's able to uh, take away baseball's antitrust exemption. I think uh, I'm so tired of as a fan being jerked around with these labor dis- disputes between ownership and players every year. Why shouldn't baseball be subject to the same rules as every other professional league? So I say more power to you, Bernie. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222-12345. Open lines. We'll get to you in just a moment. 800-848-9222. Still to come, we have Michael Harrison from Talkers Magazine. And we have a fascinating discussion with a gentleman named Todd Swindell on the subject of Amelia Earhart. Stay tuned for that. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Let's start living dangerously. Cake by the ocean. 
Nation. The, you know, this song has something like over a billion views on YouTube. It's one of the most viewed things in the history of YouTube. It's a great song, though, and a great video, actually. 800-848-9222. Uh, I'm going to get to everybody that's on hold uh, that wants to comment. You agree? You disagree? I don't care. Uh, just be interesting and have your radio turned off. That's the only two criteria that we uh, care about on the show. But since I did tiptoe into the world of sports with this new NFL rule, this new alternative football, league, which I I think is actually pretty exciting. Maybe I'm the only one. And uh, this Bernie Sanders proposal for this uh, anti taking away Major League Baseball's antitrust exemption. I have to mention, uh, you know what sport has exploded the most in the last two years in popularity? I know Matt Blaze knows what sport has has become experienced an explosion in popularity last two years. Professional wrestling. No, it hasn't. Soccer. No. Soccer's uh, always been popular. Like, it came out of nowhere. In the last two years, it's been big. I have no idea. Okay, you've got to listen more closely when I do these lessons on the radio. <laughs> Pickleball. Oh, Pickleball oh, has ball. exploded in popularity. I've still never played. Um, Minority leader Joe Borelli says he's going to take me to play one of these days, but... Basically, Pickleball is a mixture of ping pong, tennis, and badminton. And... There's this story of a pickleball vandal in Colorado at the Central Park Recreational Center. There's a Central Park not in, you know, not in um, New York, but in Colorado. And this fellow is a big pickleball player. A Denver man who he's 71 years old, and apparently that's the fun thing about Pickleball. You could play whether you're 17 or 71, and you could have nine-year-olds compete with 90-year-olds. It's a fun family activity. A Denver man dubbed the mayor of Pickleball named Arslan Gooney. He tried to create his own court, basically, and he and other Pickleball enthusiasts play the game on a basketball court at Denver's Central Park Recreational Center. The pickleball court markings had grown so faded that Gooney, this month, drew in new lines with a Sharpie. So now, he's been arrested. He was slapped with an arrest warrant three days later, three days after coloring in the pickleball markings, and he's now facing... Listen to this. Listen to this. Felony criminal mischief charges. Felony. Not even misdemeanor. This poor 71-year-old guy just wanted to play pickleball, and they weren't taking care of the court. He filled in the markings with a Sharpie, and now he's charged with a felony. The report states the city is claiming $10,000 in damages. The pickleball community is up in arms. And I'm not part of that pickleball community, but I kind of feel like they're cousins because I feel like I'm part of the ping pong community. So the the whole pickleball community, according to Jan Dever, a friend of this accused felon, is really saddened and shocked. This is crazy. This is nuts. So he's hired an attorney and they're trying to challenge this. Um, I, I mean, to charge the guy with a felony for this? This is crazy. The Denver officials are not budging. They're standing by these charges. They, um, the, the 
Parks and Rec Department had to put out a statement because people are so furious about this. It is our duty and responsibility to the citizens of Denver to protect city assets and public property. Defacing or damaging public property is unacceptable, a criminal offense, and will not be tolerated in any of our public buildings or spaces. Law enforcement is aware of the damage and the incidents being investigated. Pickleball play was temporarily suspended to assess the damage and related repairs. Boy, I wish they uh, put this much effort to actually taking care of the existing pickleball markings. I mean, I'm not saying this guy shouldn't be punished for unauthorized filling in the lines. But to charge this guy with a felony, that's crazy. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment uh, eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Wilford is in Newark. Hello, Wilford. Hello. Hey, I wanted to say to you about that uh, affirmative action. You're absolutely right. Because when I got a job coming from Vietnam, I had to take a test at Bell Telephone, and when I got, I passed it with flying colors. But when I went to the telephone company, guys were saying things like that. Oh, you on that special program? Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh, you know, and, and that's such a shame. How unfair was that to you who actually was was qualified? Well, I just told him, hey, I got it as high as mark as you could get. Right. Right. Well, and, and now the right. thing the thing with with hiring in professional sports is so often it's subjective. So there's not even an ob- objective test that they could say, oh, look, I got a 100 on my assistant coaches test. I appreciate you sharing that, Wilford. By the way, I just linked to this pickleball article. The uh, the mayor of pickleball being arrested on my Facebook page. You can read it. Facebook.com slash Morano fan. That's Facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O fan. 800-848-9222. Neil is on Staten Island. Neil, I was very dismayed at the email that you sent me yesterday. You indicated that you were on hold the other day and you just got hung up just like I did on the Curtis Sliwa show. Yeah, as soon as after, uh, I figured you didn't want to hear my question. So uh, when they announced the best question, it just went dead. I, I was never hung up before. Usually uh, they keep you on hold and you know, could talk to you later on, but it didn't work out that You're way. you kidding. My goodness, that. Neil. I wouldn't blame you for being quite disgruntled. disgruntled. Not with you, Frank. Yeah, uh, no, I don't blame you. You should form an anti-Philippe uh, super PAC. <laughs> bring, back, bring back Abby. Bring back Abby. There you have it. There you have it. Listen, Frank, uh, as a Jewish person, uh, this is very disturbing, unauthorized pickling. I mean, uh, <laughs> this really hurts, Frank. Uh, you tell Borelli, instead of taking you to play pickleball, you should take you to Harold's Pickle Bar and get a nice pastrami sandwich. That's a good one, Neil. Uh, did you have uh, two cents on the uh, the Thomas situation? Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's funny that uh, I don't know anywhere in the law that says that the spouse of somebody their rights uh, are, are taken away because of what job their spouse has. Uh, she has the right to do whatever she wants. She has the right to speak. She has the right to associate politically. And uh, it, it shouldn't affect him. And if you want to talk about the committee, I mean, Nancy Pelosi formed the committee. From day one, she's spoken out about how terrible it is those people, uh, what should happen. Right. Well, and I think if Nancy Pelosi's husband on the Supreme Court uh, was on the Supreme Court, I, I would be saying the same thing. Nobody's saying that um, she doesn't, Ginny Thomas doesn't have a right to participate in whatever activism she wants. I guess the question is one of Clarence Thomas's judgment. Should he have taken a pass 
on cases and issues that his wife was not didn't just have strong opinions about, but that she seemed to be an active participant in. And in one text, she seems to allude to the fact that, um, you know, that that she was going to talk about, you know, to to her best friend, which is how the Thomases often refer to one another. We don't know that it was Clarence Thomas, but it certainly leaves open that possibility. But needless to say, you don't think Clarence Thomas should have recused himself. No, I think it's up to him. I mean, he knows if he could be fair or not. Do we do we trust him to to for his opinion to be fair or not? I, I think we do. That's why he was put on the Supreme Court because we supposedly we trust his opinion. Uh, I don't think his wife should listen. Uh, De Blasio made laws. His wife was was. I mean, listen, she weighed in on everything. Does well, that mean I mean that, that he, that's he should... that's true, and that's a whole totally separate situation. But yeah, I think if she was on the Court of Appeals and she had to rule on, say, the constitutionality of putting up these uh, Black Lives Matter murals on public property, I would say that she should have to take a pass from that case as well. well you make a good point on that, Frank. You got me, Frank. You got me. You got well, me, Neil. Neil, uh, great call. Thank you. And uh, next time Philippe hangs up on you, let me know directly. Appreciate that. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Jay is in Cincinnati. Hello, Jay. Hey, Frank. I played lacrosse back in the day. Um, it's an American Indian game. It's really a running game. And uh, should we have more American Indian coaches in that? As far as I knew, there were any, weren't any American Indians in the school that I went to. But being an Indian game, is that... You know, should that be a requirement? No, I, I again, I don't think any of these these NFL requirements should be in place. I get what people are saying when they talk about how many black players there are versus the disparity in the number of black coaches. I get that. And I'm not saying it's something that shouldn't be addressed. I think to mandate that a team do this, I think, is a mistake, personally. 800-848-9222. Eddie is in New Jersey. Hello, Eddie. Hi, Frank. Hello, Eddie. Um, I think that the key over here is you got to differentiate between uh, a real conflict of interest and someone's wife having an opinion about uh, about a matter that might come before the Supreme Court. Right. I, I also think you have to differentiate between an opinion and being an active participant. Now, let's say... She suggested a particular strategy. And I agree with Jennifer that the only reason we know any of this is because these text messages were leaked. And uh, it's really not a, an appropriate respect of the right of privacy for all the parties involved. But um, let's say she was suggesting specific political or legal strategies to Mark Meadows. And let's say Mark Meadows implemented the very strategy that she suggested. Do you still think her husband should be able to hear a case? That is a byproduct of those same legal strategies. So if she was talking about going before the Supreme Court and mentioned her husband in that, so that could talk, that could actually be an issue. But if she's just trying to help out Mark Meadows, now I don't know what her official role. Let's say she would have been a, a lawyer of Trump, then that then I think uh, Clarence Thomas should have recused himself. But if she just, I mean, she didn't have an official position. She's a she calls herself yeah, an activist. private citizen, hundred percent. She's got as much right to participate in politics as as me, you, or anybody else. That's true, Eddie. Thank you. I I still think. Look, I think Neil brings up a good point. Also, is that we trust judges to make decisions about recusal for themselves. In my view, 
I don't think it looks great for Clarence Thomas. It's the Caesar's wife analogy. I would, I would wash my hands of it if I were him. But there's a reason he's on the Supreme Court, and I'm not. 800-848-9222. Steve is in Manhattan. Hello there, Steve. Steve. As Wolfman Jack, right? Ow! Love Wolfman Jack. Anthony's in Woodbridge. Hello, Anthony. Yeah, hi, Frank. Um, the, the question I have is, when uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was justice for decades, no one ever asked her to recuse herself from anything that would be going before the court when her husband, Mr. Ginsburg, was, I believe, the head of the, uh, the ACLU. And it only seems that when a conservative, a, a black conservative, is has to be questioned and being ridiculed and being demanded to step down and not to participate in our society. It's such nonsense. It's always the liberals crying and complaining about everything. They're little babies, they're little brat babies. All right. Well, let's let's be polite at least. Uh, but I would just say that um, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's husband was a tax lawyer who went into teaching. I believe there were instances of her recusing herself because of uh, of his role in certain cases. I mean, she certainly did recuse herself from time to time. All the justices do from time to time. Uh, and, you know, it's not as if you're somehow less of a threat to the Supreme, you're less of a justice because you recuse yourself. And as far as what you said, there were many calls for Ruth Bader Ginsburg to recuse herself from different things. In the um, in the there was uh, I remember one um, one case regarding travel bans, um, you know, the the travel ban litigation in early 2017 or mid 2017. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that is not at all out of bounds for you to call for any justice to recuse himself. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We'll continue with your calls in just a minute. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio seventy seven WABC. Now here's Frank Morano. Baby by Jack Scott. If you ever want to know the music we play, join the Facebook group. I post it there after each show. Um, just search on Facebook, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. It's also meant to be a discussion group about the different subjects that we cover on this show. Hey, uh, you know, it's funny. I spend 
a good portion of my waking hours in front of a screen. And including right now, I'm looking at a computer screen right now. One of the only times we're free from screens and alone with our thoughts is in the shower. One cognitive study, uh, according to psychologist and study author, author Scott Brian Kaufman, shows that one cognitive study showed that 72%, 72%, this is enormous, of people get their best ideas under the showerhead. That is enormous, 72%. Uh, the relaxing, solitary, and non-judgmental shower environment may afford creative thinking by allowing the mind to wander freely and causing people to be more open to their inner stream of consciousness and daydreams. That's according to the psychologist that wrote the study. I completely agree with that. And I'll tell you, one of the best decisions I ever made in our old apartment was getting a shower pad, a waterproof pad that I would put in the shower. And it has little suction cups and would go on there and I'd write things down all the time. And I had some of my best ideas there because it is a little easier to think when there's no screens or anything, no noise. And it's funny, one time I tried to do that, I, w- I couldn't, I didn't have anything planned for a certain radio segment, and I was driving to work, and I said, let me try this. No phone, no radio. Let me drive to work in silence and just think. And I'm, gonna, I'm determined to come up with a good idea of something to do on the radio. And what happened? I, <laughs> the same route that I take to work every day, I went the wrong way and got lost. The silence was so distracting to me, I went the wrong way. But um, at least I had that story to tell later that night. But, um, the, you know, I, I, I think I mentioned this before. I got this shower pad again recently, but I can't get the suction cups to stay on. I, I know I have to get uh, a lot of people said I have to get that um, isopropyl alcohol uh, on the suction cups. We'll see if that does anything. I'll work on that this weekend. I don't have... Uh, I don't think we're going anywhere this weekend. I don't have a tremendously busy weekend. By the way, we're going to do email and mail of all types coming up at the top of the 2 o'clock hour. So if you want to send me a piece of email to read, you can email me at uh, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano, M-O-R-A-N-O, at wabcradio.com. If you ever want to send snail mail, you can do so at P.O. Box 1777. My attention, Frank Morano, New York, New York, 10163. Uh, P.O. Box 1777, New York, New York, 10163. But I've been getting a lot of email asking about a story that I told uh, on the radio or that I referenced uh, a week or two ago regarding losing my tuxedo pants the last time I rented a tuxedo. Uh, I'll be honest, there's not really much to the story. What happened was Betsy McCoy, who I think a, a, I have a lot of respect for, and she's a good friend, she had invited me to the Hamilton dinner, which is the dinner that the Manhattan Institute puts on. This is about 10 years ago. And, it, and she said it's black tie. And she, Betsy couldn't imagine that I didn't have my own tuxedo. So I didn't want to look like a dope. So I went out and I rented a tuxedo from a a place near where I worked. 
and went to the event. The event went well. It was fine. It was an open bar, most important. And then the next day, I bring my tuxedo to work to return it. And somehow along the way, I lost the pants. Must have slipped off the hanger or something. So it's not really an exciting story of... Uh, you know, any anything embarrassing or anything sexual. I mean, the only thing that was embarrassing was these pants fell off the hanger, probably on the train, and that I then had to pay, I think, $150 to replace them. I was really bummed about move. that at a time that I didn't have the $150. Roger is in Massachusetts. Hello, Roger. Yeah, thanks. Look, um, I remember... Uh, during the when the the Supreme Court was trying to judge on the constitutionality of Obamacare, it was either Elena Kagan or Sonia Sotomayor who had a hand in writing uh, the Obamacare bill. And uh, from what I understood, uh, people were disappointed that whoever it was didn't recuse themselves, and they thought that that, that the individual should have that the justice should have. Uh, at that time, but they actually had a hand in writing the Obamacare bill. Yeah, so uh, that, that is fair. That was Justice Kagan, and I do think she should have recused herself there. I completely agree. Uh, but yeah. that, you know, uh, to me, to say that one justice made the wrong call doesn't justify justices on the other side of the equation making the wrong call. But. That's just one man's opinion. You're free to disagree. Uh, weigh in on the Facebook group as you like, Morano Radio fans and haters, or you can just like our Facebook page. That's where I post most of the articles that we do on this, uh, you know, as talk topics. It's Facebook.com slash Morano Fan. That's Facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O Fan. We're on Twitter as well, at Frank Morano. That's M-O-R-A-N-O. All right, coming up next hour, we're going to go through the mail, and we are going to talk with Todd Swindell about Amelia Earhart, some new theories about her disappearance and a new look at some of the old theories about her disappearance. We're going to get into that in a big way. You want to get your email read in the next few minutes, email me frank.morano at wabcradio.com, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Uh, in the meantime, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Make sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morning, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Amelia Earhart's disappearance. And uh, it's funny. I don't want to spoil it for you, but there's some new forensic evidence in this case. And some people are dismissing this, but there's a visual component of this 
that I find pretty compelling. We're going to get into that in about 20 minutes. Uh, don't go anywhere. Now, now, meantime, those of you that are holding, I will get to you. But it's the moment of the week with, uh, that so many of you have been waiting for. It is time for those of you that prefer written correspondence instead of telephone correspondence to be heard. It is time for... an email from John who writes as a regular listener to your show I was very excited when you announced that you had invited every New York gubernatorial candidate to be interviewed on your show however I'm very disappointed that to date I've only heard three candidates interviewed on the other side of midnight I would think that every gubernatorial candidate would have taken advantage of the opportunity to be heard by the New York state voters who listen to a New York number one Nielsen-rated radio show. Can you explain why you think that some gubernatorial candidates have chose not to accept your invitation to be interviewed uh, on WABC? Well, now all four of the major Republicans have accepted that invitation. Um, that was before Lee Zeldin had come on, and I say more power to them. I'm going to have them all on again um, between now and the primary. I am disappointed in the Democrats, especially Tom Swazi and uh, Jamani Williams. I've never met Kathy Hochul, I don't believe, but uh, I have met both uh, Swazi and Jamani Williams a number of times, and I've never known either of them, even though they disagree on a bunch of issues from each other and with me. I've never known either of them to run away from a challenging question. And honestly, have you ever heard an interview that I've done where I've been rude or abrasive? I mean, you can listen to any interview I've ever done with anyone, whether we're talking the faking of the moon landing or the presidential race. And I am unfailingly polite with everybody. I'm not going to be rude to anybody. So the only reason I could think that um, those three candidates have not yet come on is because they think either they don't need to. Or they think they're afraid they might say something that could hurt them. It's the only thing I can imagine. Uh, email subject, in a faraway place. This is from Mike. Hello, Frank. I'm quite sure this is none of my business, but you ma- you've made it so. The topic of destination weddings. When you brought up the subject of your brother's wedding in Hawaii, I thought, a bit selfish? Question mark. I can understand having a destination wedding if the bride is from one place and the groom from another. Find some middle ground. To me, this makes perfect sense. For you to fly halfway around the world so you and others can attend, not so much. Your wife and son won't be attending. I'll bet she'd like to go on a vacation to Hawaii. Who wouldn't? The cost for flights and lodging and the time involved, it's going to put a significant strain on your resources. Plus a wedding gift? Cha-ching! You're too nice of a guy to complain, so I'll complain for you. Anything farther than a three-hour drive, I would consider a destination wedding. Past that, sorry, I won't be attending. And now I'm being selfish. No Frank Morano on the radio while you're away. So now we all suffer. Well, look, um, my brother Nick, it's something he wanted to do. Whatever. It's his wedding. He should do what he wants. 
My wife and I discussed doing a destination wedding because we recognized pretty early on that uh, my guest li- that the guest list was going to get out of control because of all the people that we know and are related to. And basically, we decided not to do it because she was afraid that several of her sisters wouldn't come. And it was more important to us to be around family than to go and do a destination wedding somewhere. But look, different strokes for different folks. It's his wedding, not ours. And uh, no, as far as gifts, they've made clear that there's a no gift policy. They're very serious about that. And that asking people to fly to Hawaii, they're not asking people to get a gift. Ellen Schwartz writes, why does Curtis snipe at you all the time? Unless it is a tactic to foster interest... It only reflects so poorly on himself and the radio station. Kindergarten stuff for sure. Regards, Ellen. As I've stated before, um, if you listen carefully to what Curtis says, even when he's mocking me, he's basically instructing everybody to listen to the show. So I have no issue with anything Curtis does. Curtis is a good friend and has helped me out many, many times. He can say whatever he wants about me on the radio or in private, and that's just fine. Uh, Jim in New Hampshire writes on the subject of daylight saving time. Frank, the proper term is daylight saving time, not daylight savings time. I've listened carefully and believe you say it correctly. I do. But many callers do not. This is very annoying. You should call them out. If you have a problem with the Ukraine, you should be equally outraged by savings time. Jim in New Hampshire. Look, I I try to be, I try to lead by example, right? I try to get people to my way of of speaking and pronunciation. Whether that's Ukraine instead of the Ukraine, whether it's daylight saving time instead of daylight savings time, whether that's maple instead of maple. Um, If people want to adopt my nomenclature, I think that's great. If they don't, who am I to tell anybody how they should speak, right? It's Boy, I love being right, huh? <laughs> it's your world. We're just living in it. Uh, Catherine writes, love the video of Aunt Camille and Baby Carmine. Hi, Frank. Love the human interest aspect of your program in addition to the political side. In particular, what drew my attention recently was the video of your Aunt Camille making the much-cherished egg salad. Additionally, it was truly sweet how you welcomed Baby Carmine to your aunt's kitchen. And shared your appreciation of her and her cooking. Maybe you could have a regular video of Aunt Camille making additional dishes. And you could do a Q&A with, with your aunt on her views on life. She looks like a very sweet person. She is. That's not a bad idea. Maybe we will do that. You know, my my only issue is finding the time to do all these things, all these videos of that nature. But I think she might like that. All right. Uh, Stephen writes, Frank, enjoy your show very much. I caught the tail end of interview with seemed to be a Ukraine expert or ex-CIA guy. Not sure, but interview was cut off so quick at the end, it was uncomfortable. It was very interesting, and then you ended it so abrupt with him. I know it's a lot of work putting your show together, and I'm sure it's not easy actually doing it. Are you? Are you sure, Stephen? I'd just like to hear the interviews not end so abrupt. Because you've been having very interesting interviews. Everybody's a critic, of course. LOL. Just heard. It was Ray McGovern from a caller that just mentioned. Anyway, thanks for an entertaining show. Stephen, let me just say, 
Um, I had Ray McGovern on for a half hour. Show me another radio station, a radio show in this city, in this country, that's having Ray McGovern on for a half hour. In New York City, there's not. So um, there was nothing abrupt about the interview. And if you heard the whole thing, which you can listen to in its entirety uh, by going to the podcast at fmwabc.com, there was nothing abrupt about it. I said his name repeatedly throughout the interview. Now, the reason it seemed kind of abrupt is because I asked one minor question towards the end, which I expected a brief answer to, and he went on for a minute and a half, and we were running out of time. We're up against the top of the hour news. So I had to cut him off because he was answering in a lengthy manner for a question that I anticipated getting a a brief response to. Uh, Subject, I'm not doing well. Paul writes, Frank, I've been listening to Curtis's show and the calls and the show run smoother without the how are you's and thanks for taking my calls. He may be on to something. Paul and Yonkers, let me tell you something. He's on to nothing. When people call in and say, how are you? Wow. They're not really expecting an answer. It's just a way of saying hello. It's a common greeting. Hello. Hello. How are you? How are you doing? It's it's just a way of saying hello. Thanks for taking my call. Do you know how long that those four words of being polite just took? Thanks for taking my call. Half a second. Do you think the show is really grinding to a halt? The flow of this show is really that much disrupted for a half a second of thanks for taking my call. Come on. Hell no. Now, Mike writes. Hello, Frank. I'm writing in regard to your mug situation. He's talking about the coffee mug surplus that's in my house. Not my face, I assume. A thoughtful gift sent to you by someone who obviously knows of your fondness for such things. The fact that they ended up in your recycling is quite strange. First of all, first of all, they're not a recyclable item. There's no symbol or number to designate their chemical makeup. It was a message, plain and simple. No more tchotchkes for you. No moss. Enough. Your wife, let's assume it was her for a moment. It was. She's confessed. If she had placed them there knowing all too well that you would surely find them when sorting and organizing your recycling for the trip to the market. If she had smashed them and discarded them in the regular trash, no message sent. Their disappearance, a mystery. Like Amelia Earhart. And your desire for such things would have continued unabated. Going forward, I would advise, have all items of this nature sent to the radio station where you can enjoy them at your leisure. A hot cup of coffee in the mug of your choice, perhaps Garfield or Roosevelt sharing the moment, not having to worry about their suspicious disappearance, unless stolen by some co-workers, which is always a possibility. Yeah, it is. You know, we had it the other side of Midnight Mug. It was stolen. It was pilfered. I still would love to know who, who was responsible for that. Um, that's fair. I do. I think it was just a case of my wife being sloppy. She didn't think I was gonna. I was gonna stop her, but she said she was going to up her game and be a little bit more sneaky about how she was disposing of my mug. Meantime, I am arranging with different friends and family members different mug holding facilities, different people's houses that I can keep mugs at, so that I can use while I'm there. 
And this way it deals with her issue of a mug surplus and it deals with my desire to not give these, not throw these mugs away. Because a lot of these mugs are, have a lot of sentimental value to me. All right. Um, that concludes this edition of the mail. If you didn't get your email read, you can have a shot at doing so next week. You can email me frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's what it means when we go through. Thoughts, comments, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. You know, it's funny. I just got an SMS text message from my mother, who is actually a very creative force when it comes to this stuff. She says, I think you should slap Curtis for dissing you. I am sure he would be happy to do a video. That's fair. You know, I think Curtis would be happy to do that. Maybe we'll do that on, um, maybe we'll do that tomorrow. Uh, excuse me, on Sunday when he's on right before me. Because, you know, a bunch of people uh, have that subscribe to the Matt Blaze staged Will Smith, Chris Rock theory. Uh, they're saying, well, security, why didn't security stop them? Don't you think security assumed that it was a bit? Don't you think security is plugged into every Academy Awards bit? And it's Will Smith. Who's going to stop him? I was talking with Dominic Carter about this right before the show, right before his show. And I said to him, and we were in agreement, that security is not going to stop Will Smith at the Academy Awards. It's like stopping Derek Jeter at Yankee Stadium. It's not going to happen. If I if I wanted to slap Dominic Carter while he was on the air and I were to walk in here, who's going to stop me? Everyone would have assumed I have permission to come into the studio. And they're all people that know that I belong here in some capacity. No one's going to stop security. Can you imagine being the security guard that stops Will Smith? You remember, you know what it reminds me of? And you could look this up on YouTube. This is maybe about... Uh, Ooh, more than 15 years ago. Maybe it's about 16, 17 years ago. I can't believe it. It feels like yesterday. Do you remember Colin Powell was doing an interview with Tim Russert? It's hard to believe they're both gone, isn't it? They both seem like such present day figures. And Colin Powell's doing an interview with Tim Russert. And I guess the amount of time that they had agreed to for the interview had ended. And Colin Powell's assistant gets, this is a live interview, gets in the way of the camera while Colin Powell's doing an interview with Tim Russert. And and Tim Russert says, what are you doing? He says, get out of the way, Emily. And he finished the interview. I mean, it was bizarre seeing this woman try to stop the interview. That's what I think the reaction would have been like if a security guard would have stopped Will Smith. And who knows? You know, he might have um, been unrestrainable. Who knows? Uh, 800-848-WABC. Mike is in Florida. Hello, Mike. Oh, my gosh. Great. What a good show. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Um, A few quick things. Number one, I think what Will Smith uh, did um, was wrong to uh, slap Chris Rock because as a totally blind person, my feeling is that Okay, to give you a, a quick example, 
in Miami, um, pretty famous on the radio. People used to call me Blind Mike. Okay, I may not like it, but I wouldn't slap anybody because of the fact that they hurt my feelings. Well, also, being blind, you're probably not the best at knowing which direction to aim your slap. Right. Right, I'm not. But my feeling is that what I would have done is if somebody did that, if somebody did that, I would have said uh, that was in bad taste. You shouldn't have said that or whatever. And for him to make fun of her, I think it was really sad. By the way, I want to tell you how much I enjoy your bumper music. And I grew up on with WABC years ago. I used to always listen to it a lot. And I love the jingles. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm very proud that we still we have a jingle on this show, and it's one of the few radio shows uh, in the modern day that still has a, a jingle. Very proud of that. Mike, thanks for the call. I appreciate that, and I hope you'll call again. Okay, thanks for listening. Thank you, Mike. 800-848-9222. Amelia Earhart disappeared. 1937. What became of her? We'll explore it straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Side of Midnight presents What you're about to hear is not a news broadcast. Perhaps you can help solve a mystery. This is the Murano Mystery. Ah, yes, the latest installment of our growing list of unsolved mysteries that we are eager to look into has to do with Amelia Earhart and her disappearance. Joining me to discuss it this morning is Todd Swindell. He is an investigative researcher, a filmmaker, and an aviation historian who has a great deal of interest in the Amelia Earhart case. Also has a fascinating website called protectingearhart.com. Todd, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Hey, thanks for having me. So um, let's begin with the basics uh, for people that what what sparked your interest in Amelia Earhart? Well, I uh, approached it from a, a filmmaker's uh, viewpoint back in the 1990s, a research and development of an Earhart story that came across my desk when I was with Universal. And uh, that sparked my interest. And uh, so you have been studying aviation history for a long time, right? About 30 years I've I've been into it, yeah. And for people that may be a little rusty in terms of Amelia Earhart, her life and uh, her disappearance, give us the official story first. What is the official story about what happened with Amelia Earhart? Well, uh, there really is no official story. Uh, it was left uh, for people to assume that she crashed and sank in the Pacific Ocean with her navigator, Fred Noonan, in 1937. Uh, but it w- really was something that people were left to assume. Uh, there was never an official explanation offered. There was never an official investigation into the matter. Uh, so that's about it. 
There was never an official investigation into the matter? No, there wasn't. So before we go into your theory and the evidence that uh, that's supporting it, why do you doubt that she just uh, in 1937 crashed and disappeared and died that way? Well, there's an overwhelming preponderance of uh, circumstantial evidence and uh, testimonials uh, that says she didn't. And if you look into that uh, on a serious level in depth, uh, most people get convinced uh, that uh, she did not uh, go down in the sea, that she made it to dry land. Well, you got a fascinating documentary that's coming out, and people can see the trailer at protectingairheart.com, and I suggest they watch it because there's some really compelling visuals which uh, may have made me a believer. This huh. is a piece of audio that I took from your trailer of uh, Monsignor Kelly doing uh, doing an interview on the subject of uh, Amelia oh. Earhart with uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Reinick. Uh, this yes. is Monsignor James Francis Kelly. I want people to listen to what he says and um, what he says about Amelia Earhart. Specifically, I want to know about Amelia Earhart. You say you brought her home from Japan? Yes, I was instrumental in getting her freed, and she stayed there for a while, maybe about three or four weeks, I guess. Now, that's Monsignor James Francis Kelly saying uh, that he was instrumental in getting her home from Japan, and he, he stay, she stayed here for a while, three or four weeks, I guess. Who is Monsignor James Francis Kelly? When was that recording from, and where is here, as far as we know? Here was his home in uh, New Jersey. He lived in Rumson, New Jersey. He had a Victorian mansion there. He was a very well-known Catholic priest. He died in 1996. The recording was made in September of 1991. Colonel Rollin C. Reinick uh, had heard that he had told people uh, who had reached out to him about it. And uh, he decided to uh, phone up Monsignor uh, Kelly and see if he can get some uh, the straight story from him. He even made a trip all the way to Monsignor Kelly's neck of the woods from Hawaii where he lived. Uh, so he flew from Hawaii to New Jersey and met with the guy. He was elderly, uh, but he did say a lot of other things. And in the documentary, you'll see a lot of the more recordings. Uh, you'll hear them. Um, but basically, he started telling people in the early 1980s uh, that uh, Amelia uh, did come home and he helped her assume a different identity uh, and uh, that uh, it was something where uh, part of the choice, the, the major choice was hers, uh, that she did not want to be known as the famous Amelia Earhart anymore. And uh, for reasons that really only she understood and maybe a handful of others, it wasn't a vast conspiracy. I, I don't, uh, I don't believe it was. I, I believe it was a very controlled end of toward the end of world war II subject matter that, uh, people who knew about it, people in official halls, uh, like a lot of things at the end of world war II, uh, let's move on. Let's just move away from this. Uh, so uh, I could say a lot about Monsignor Kelly. He he was president of Seton Hall University. 
uh, from 1935 to 1949. Uh, uh, he knew uh, Francis Cardinal Spellman. Uh, he uh, when the uh, uh, Pope, so he's uh, a credible guy. Credible. Uh, he's a, definitely is. Yeah. I mean, all right. Yeah. We're talking with Todd Swindell, uh, investigative researcher and filmmaker. You can check out his website, protectingairheart.com. All right, Todd, what do you think happened? I think that uh, Amelia uh, went a plan B option with her navigator, Fred Noonan. They missed uh, finding Howland Island. Uh, they stayed in radio contact. People don't know that. Uh, but there is uh, documentation uh, from intelligence records that says she, she turned north. And she eventually alighted on uh, uh, Miliato of the Marshall Islands. Uh, many testimonials support that. And there's also physical evidence. Uh, and she was picked up, uh, transferred over to uh, Japan's Imperial Navy. Uh, the government did a, <clears throat> the Navy did a, uh, U.S. Navy did a, a two-week search effort with uh, warships and merchant vessels combing the area. But Japan, who was just about to go to war with uh, China, would not let the U.S. come close to the Marshall Islands, even though that was a highly suspected ditching place. So all of the search efforts, land and sea search efforts that uh, took place in the South Pacific Islands, never uh, came close to the marshals. And this was uh, a key area at the time. Um, I don't really buy into the spying theory that much. Um, the theory that she was a, a spy for the United States? Right. I'm, I'm, I, I don't think there's enough evidence to support that. There is uh, a, a lot of hearsay and innuendo, and there is some documentation that research, early researchers like uh, Fred Gorner uh, from CBS Radio in the 1960s, uh, uh, Randall Brink, author of the book Lost Star, good friend of mine, uh, came out in 1994. Uh, but still, there's there's missing pieces. You have to have a smoking gun. And if you don't have a smoking gun, you can't really solve a mystery clearly. So um, you believe she didn't die and that she landed on this island and she was picked up by the Japanese and lived there. Well, she uh, was taken, uh, uh, I, I like to say she was sequestered. Uh, why are you here? You're so far off of your path. And there's there's reasons for that. Uh, she had mentioned uh, to uh, the Bureau of Air Commerce Chief, Gene Vidal, that if they missed Howland, they'd save enough fuel uh, to get back to the Gilbert Islands, which were under British uh, authority and control back then. And that was directly below uh, uh, the, uh, the Marshall Islands, part of the same archipelago. But, um, so they steered too far north, avoiding storm squalls, and they just hit, uh, Miliatol. And, uh, it's unfortunate they did, uh, because, uh, it had, uh, the, the, at the time they were picked up, it was right when the Marco Polo Bridge incident was happening in China, which was July 7th. They disappeared on July 2nd. And uh, and from then on, that was a precursor to World War II, and uh, things started getting tense. And I think that uh, they just wanted to know what she was doing there. So um, 
aside from that audio and that testimony from Monsignor Kelly, what other evidence is there to suggest that she didn't die in 1937? There is body evidence. And you talk about a smoking gun. And when you have uh, a woman who uh, inadvertently stands accused of being the former Amelia Earhart on uh, to the national uh, media, news media in 1970, which is what happened. Um, a gal named Irene Bolam uh, took on the national press circuit of New York City and uh, denied uh, that she was Amelia Earhart. Well, so let's and pause there because uh, mm-hmm. we haven't mentioned that, right? So okay. you believe she survived, and we'll get mm-hmm. to what evidence suggests her her survival. But then sure. after she survived and after she was questioned by the Japanese, she came, in your view, she came back to the United States and lived under a new identity as this woman, Irene Bolam, here in the United States. Yeah, it's a little more complicated than that. And uh, uh, a fella who had uh, been conducting a, a, an investigation called Operation Earhart in the 1960s, it was a 10-year in-depth investigation. And he was invited by some of Amelia's old friends to come and speak on Long Island to uh, a crowd of early flyers uh, about his investigations. And he met Irene there. Irene... Her full name was Irene O'Crowley Craigmile. She married a fella in 1958 from England named Guy Bolam. So she became Irene Bolam at that time. Uh, but there was an original Irene Craigmile in the 1930s who Amelia Earhart knew. So the shared identity thing actually becomes an obvious reality when someone researches the real Irene Craigmile from the 1930s. Uh, there were actually a total of three different women who used that same identity in the 20th century. So Irene and- Craigmile was a pilot. It was someone that Amelia Hart had a relationship with someone that Amelia Earhart knew. Amelia Earhart doesn't die in 1937. She comes back to the United States and she assumes the identity of this woman who she had known previously. That's correct. Um, what became, if anything, do we know of the original Irene Craigmile? The original Irene Craigmile goes missing. And the, uh, one of the theorists I, I talked to early on, uh, really felt that her demise was somehow covered over to enable this to happen for Amelia. And if you look at the uh, the World War II file on Amelia Earhart held by J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI, his fingerprints are all over this. Um, uh, he was getting reports from uh, uh, soldiers from overseas as, as, as late as 1945 toward the end of the war uh, that Amelia Earhart was alive and well. Uh, in, in in the custody of Japan, uh, and that's that's a matter of record. Anyone can look it up. So, I, I just whatever happened to I, the original Irene Craigmile, I don't know. I can tell you this: she had a she uh, was flying for a little while right after she got her license in in uh, mid nineteen thirty three. She met a pilot friend, 
and became uh, a guy and became pregnant out of wedlock. Now, on your and, website, um, mm-hmm. uh, there are photos of Amelia Earhart, and then mm-hmm. there's photos using digital aging to make her look older, and then there's photos of the real Irene Bolum or Irene Craigmile later mm-hmm. in life. She looks not a little bit. She looks exactly like Amelia Earhart. She looks exactly like Amelia Earhart in the aged photo, especially if people want to see these images. I've just linked to one of your YouTube videos showing uh, a post 1940 Irene to Amelia digital dissolve. The facial structure, very similar. The teeth, very similar. The facial expressions, very similar. You can see it at my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. But this theory, as you, you, as you mentioned, this theory that Irene Bolum was Amelia Earhart is not a new theory. It's been around for over 50 years, right? It has. And the amazing thing about it is I, I came to know a lot of the uh, guys who were uh, uh, you know, uh, putting this forward in the 1990s. And uh, they had formed something called the Amelia Earhart Society of Researchers. Um, it's defunct now. Most of the guys were older. They were World War II veterans, a lot of them, uh, 99s members. Uh, but uh, I, I learned so much from them. And, uh, you know, the, the idea that Irene Craigmile uh, uh, did exist, and uh, I didn't finish that end of the story. Sure, please. She had a, uh, a, a child uh, after she became pregnant, and she stopped flying at that time. So she only logged a very limited amount of hours. But her, her, her picture appeared in a newspaper with Amelia Earhart. Uh, she was friends with Viola Gentry, who was also friends with Amelia Earhart. Um, when you think about the idea that you see clearly three different human beings attributed to this same identity, with only the one who matched Amelia appearing that way from the 1940s on, it kind of answers itself. Um, it's not just a congruence of the face. It's a head-to-toe physical and character traits congruence that we're talking about, which is to say there's hundreds of comparisons beyond what you see on the website. Uh, there's handwriting. There's voice. There's everything. And you have not seen this before because when I talked to these guys in the 1990s, and I said, it was toward the late 1990s when I finally asked Joe Jervis, who met this gal, I said, has anyone ever compared her uh, physically or, or, or character traits in a forensic way to Amelia Earhart? And he was still insisting she was the former Amelia Earhart, but he said, no, no one's ever, no one's ever done that. So that's what inspired me to, to contact experts and to, uh, do uh, a study uh, to, uh, to, to charge forward with a forensic study that compared Irene O'Crowley, Craig Mile Bolum, the post-1940 Irene, to Amelia Earhart. Who was, and if people just tuning in, we're talking with Todd Swindell. We're not even scratching the surface of the research <laughs> he's done into this subject. you got to check out the website, protectingearheart.com. There's also some great videos on there, some great photos, and you can ju- judge for yourself. And I'm going to ask you about this documentary, Todd. But mm-hmm. who was the third woman who assumed the identity of Irene? The third woman was the adoptive mother 
of the 1934 born son of the original Irene Craigmile. So you have the original Irene Craigmile, who for some reason, by the end of the 1930s, no longer is physically evident. And the reason is we don't know. But she was replaced by this nanny figure who ended up becoming the adoptive mother of Larry Heller, who was the 1934-born son, only child of the original Irene Craigmile. So what became of her if Amelia Earhart then assumed her identity in the 1940s? Uh, of the adoptive mother? Of the adoptive mother. mother, yes. She she lived on, and she actually uh, was somebody who, uh, I call her the former Amelia, but uh, or, or the Jervis Irene, uh, who, who knew? Uh, uh, Amelia, the former Amelia, helped steward the the uh, the raising of the original Irene Craig Miles' son through with this other woman, uh, and it's 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 really gets spooky and hairy when you see on uh, uh, Irene uh, uh, Craig Miles Bolam's uh, death was recorded in 1982. On the cover of the memorial dinner uh, program that was held for this lavish dinner, the adoptive mother appears. Uh, and it makes you wonder who really died. Did, you know, is this, is this another non-death of Amelia Earhart? Did she, <laughs> did she keep living on or, or who, which one? Cause she was considerably younger. The, the adoptive mother was a full generation. I'd say almost younger than uh, uh, the original Irene and Amelia. The original Irene and Amelia were contemporaries, uh, but this gal was much, much younger. Interesting. Now, Mm -hmm. um, 1970, a book is published alleging this theory of uh, Mm -hmm. Irene Bolam being Amelia Earhart. Irene Bolam publicly and loudly says, this isn't true. She sues uh, and the book is withdrawn by its publishers. There's a settlement out of court. If there was um, any evidence of this, why would the publisher not have stood up to Irene Bolam and have this case go to trial and presented their evidence in court? Actually, they, they did, uh, but they didn't do it the full nine yards. That trial was actually a defamation lawsuit. And Irene Craigmile sued McGraw-Hill, the publisher, and Jervis and Kloss, the, the, the fellows who had the copyright on the book. Joe Kloss wrote it. Uh, Joe Jervis, it was based on Jervis's investigation. And um, it went five years. Um, she kept postponing, uh, not showing up. Uh, but it was her lawsuit and, uh, she, it's odd what she sued for. She sued for, uh, being called a bigamist in the book, uh, for being, re- uh, called a traitor to her country, uh, for being referred to as Tokyo Rose. These are all things related to who Amelia Earhart would have been, not, not this woman. I Interesting. Read, Craig Mile Bolton. So in the end, I mean, she sues for $1.5 million, and after five years, as it wanes down, Jervis, Joe Jervis, tells his lawyer, you know what? I'll, we'll cave in. We'll give in. We want proof positive of her identity. And uh, requested her fingerprints. Uh, she refused to be fingerprinted, uh, turned down 
that uh, $1.5 million award and settled with Jervis and Kloss uh, for $10 of consideration exchanged by both sides. And McGraw-Hill did end up paying her $60,000 for poor fact-checking in the book. Hmm. But that was it. There was it had, the trial had nothing to do with whether she was the former Amelia Earhart or not. And, and people don't get that. They don't understand that. Yeah. Um, now, that's fascinating. I had known about this woman's existence, but I had no idea that a simple fingerprint test could have put this all to rest. Why do you think, and I realize we're in the area of speculation here, why do you think Amelia slash Irene would deny that she was Amelia Earhart? What would she have to gain by carrying on this this farce for decades? Well, when you think about that, and <clears throat> she did not want to go back to being the famous Amelia Earhart anymore. If you look at the profile of Amelia Earhart's character uh, throughout her nine years of fame, she was not very happy with being a famous person. Uh, she had announced that she was going on her last great flight. She had introduced Jackie Cochran as the next queen of the air. Um, so there's a lot of things that, that do add up to say, okay, somebody's recognized me, but I have a lot of power and a lot of influence behind me to stand by my denial. Uh, back then you couldn't, you just run out and do a DNA check. You couldn't just, and you know, she never, what are you, who's going to get her, who's going to do a black bag job on her house and get fingerprints? I don't think anybody ever really did that. Um, they just accepted her denial and let her walk away. And she did. And people forgot about the story. Uh, you know, there's, I interviewed Joe Jervis in the documentary it was the last interview he did in 2002. He died in 2005. And uh, I asked him point blank, do you still believe that uh, Iron Craig Mile Bolam was a former Amelia Earhart? And he says, yes, I do. And there's other people who did too, you know, who do too. So um, it sends a chill down you to know that there's all these other theories out there and people have been pushing these uh, cottage industry stories forward. But there's only one truth. And you have to go where the bulk or the, the key evidence uh, exists and promotes what it promotes. There's no other evidence that promotes any other theory other than hearsay and innuendo. But there is an overwhelming preponderance of circumstantial and uh, uh, detailed evidence, uh, documented evidence that says this happened. You alluded to J. Edgar Hoover, the former head of the FBI's fingerprints being all over this. What do you believe the government, our government, actually knows about this uh, switcheroo of uh, Irene assuming the identity, Amelia assuming the identity of Irene? And have you tried to do a FOIL request for any documents that would reveal what the government does actually know? Yeah, well, Freedom of Information Act, I think you're referring to things like that. But um, it, I'm not even sure there's many people left in Washington, D.C. that pay much attention to this today. Um, it, it, it had been uh, pretty much cleared uh, by the mid-1980s after she died 
uh, and uh, the son of the original Irene Craigmile, who I know uh, identified the adoptive mother and not uh, the uh, post-1940 Irene, uh, very, he's still living today. Um, but, uh, you know, I just don't think there's that many people uh, who in Washington who would know where to look uh, for information. Randall Brink did a great job under, uh, uh, you know, finding the Morgenthau files and spent a lot of time in Hyde Park uh, Library and uh, FDR's files. Uh, and he, he got some good stuff. But, uh, uh, for instance, uh, nine months after Amelia's gone, Eleanor Roosevelt gets a request uh, from uh, Jackie Cochran to, to that she thinks more searching should be done, or they, they should keep at it. Sure. And, uh, and they, uh, uh, Roosevelt's administration, Henry Morgenthau Jr., one of his right hand men, says, uh, "We have, we can't uh, give out any information. We have confidential information, and I just hope I never have to make it public." So. There's a lot of things you could do with that. What is he talking about? But he was talking about something. And what he was talking about, you, you, you point to the Marshall Islands testimonials of so many people and so many World War II veterans who add up this, do this neat math problem that adds it up to her ending up there under some sort of precarious circumstance where maybe they, sh- they thought she died or had to assume so much. But then later realized, oh, she didn't. And come the end of the war, Monsignor Kelly's there helping out. I mean, this guy, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, and, you know, they have these uh, federal witness protection programs and uh, they contrive these things. I had never seen or heard of it with a famous person before. Right. I guess, but, I guess what I'm not clear is what interest would the FBI have in being a part of this con on the public? Just to, just to leave Amelia dead. She was, she, <laughs> Amelia Earhart was legally declared dead mm-hmm. in, in 1939, two years after she disappeared. She was declared dead in absentia. So you want to rebirth her at the end of World War II and, and cause more consternation when we're trying to settle differences with Japan and, and, you know, like we were with Germany, getting their rocket technology, getting Japan's radio technology. We, there was all kinds of reasons that people wanted to move on from this. Uh, they, they just did not want to go back and say, oh, here she is. Now let's go get the people who did this. And she probably said, don't let me live a private life from now on. I'm sick of that famous stuff. I'm sick of what happened to me. I don't want to have to talk about it. I don't want to have to say where I was or what I was doing for those eight years I was gone. If I say I'm Amelia Earhart now in 1970, I'm going to get one question after another asked me about those things. And I don't want to have to sit up and have to answer them. Now, if the Japanese did interrogate her and they did find her after her 1937 disappearance, you would think the Japanese government would have some sort of a record of that. Have you have you looked at those records and what, if anything, have you found from the Japanese end of things? Well, from the Japanese end of things, uh, there were reports in Tokyo uh, just about 10 days after Amelia disappeared that, uh, that she was picked up in the Marshall Islands. 
and those all got muted. Uh, <clears throat> there is record of uh, headlines from INS News uh, direct from Tokyo uh, that this is this was conveyed and reported. But suddenly that goes away, and you have uh, World War II soldiers in Japan uh, after the war uh, finding magazine articles with Amelia's picture in Japanese magazines. These are all listed in FBI files. Um, so, you know, I just think that there was also the, 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 the Gilberts were British controlled, and they had great archives down there in Tarawa, uh, that World War II uh, veterans, uh, the soldiers who were serving at the time, were made privy to. So the way I see it is there's a post-war connection and an alliance, uh, and I, I'm not calling it a vast conspiracy because I don't like that word, but it's uh, between Japan, the United States, and England, hmm. some kind of hush-hush thing about let's move on and let's let her be. Let's let her have peace. Let's not go back. She doesn't want to go back. We'd rather her not go back. Let's just do this thing. And um, the families of both uh, any living relatives of Amelia Earhart and the son of Irene Bolam, they're mm -hmm. not on board, neither of them, with this theory, right? Publicly anyway? N not publicly. Uh, Amy Klebner is the closest living relative to Amelia. She's the, the her, her niece, the daughter of Amelia's sister, Muriel. And, uh, she knew Irene. She, <laughs> they were friends. And, you know, it's, it's funny because she, she, as soon as it was made public, she was very demonstrative about it needing to go away right away. Mm. She even wrote McGraw Hill saying, don't publish this book. All right. Uh, uh Todd, uh, I can't yeah. wait to see this documentary. You've pitched, you piqued my interest. When can people see it? How can people see it? It's scheduled for May 20th, which is uh, marks the anniversary of uh, uh, Amelia Earhart's uh, solo flight uh, across uh, the Atlantic. And uh, uh, that uh, uh, is when it's, it's supposed to premiere. I'm going to be doing uh, press screenings in New York. I'm going to be doing press screenings in Los Angeles. Great. Well, we'll get you in studio um, to do some follow-up on that when you're in New York. That'll be fun. And if there's a screening here in New York, I'll certainly be there. Okay, I appreciate it, Frank. Thank you. you. Todd Swindle, mm -hmm. check out the website, protectingairheart.com. If you want to comment on anything we're covering and any, any of the discussion we had, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, those of you that are on hold to talk about the Amelia Earhart situation, we will get to you in just a minute. But there was one story that uh, I want to bring to your attention uh, that I uh, saw in the New Jersey Globe. And I think it's an interesting question that New Jersey's got to figure out. There is... 
just one state, just one state in the entire country that has no law to break ties in the event of an electoral tie. Meaning if there's an election, one person gets 100 votes, another person gets 100 votes. That's a tie. And do you know what that state is? Anyone? Anyone? The the only state in the entire country that has no law to break election ties is New Jersey. How can you guys in New Jersey not have a provision to break a tie? Hello. So I think we're overusing that. Hello. It's gotten to the point of being annoying. Let's let's put that on the back burner. I think it's gotten it's 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 a bit much. New Jersey is the only state that doesn't have a tie breaking statute. So seats sit vacant until judges and county election officials can agree on a date for a do over election that typically draws relatively few voters. Think of the cost that's involved in having a whole new election because New Jersey doesn't have a tie-breaking statute. In South Tom's River, just last week, just 15.9% of voters participated in a special election for a borough council seat that had been empty for a year as judges mulled challenges to a November 2020 election that ended in a tie. The seat's empty for a year. What does that mean? Who is the people that are being most inconvenienced? The voters that have no representation. The, I, I know there's a lot of New Jersey state legislators that listen to this show. My friend Robert Auth, my friend Don Guardian, John Bramnick, several others probably that I don't even know about. This ought to change pronto. There ought to be in a provision in the state law that deals with a tie, whatever it is. Turnout in South River was 65 percent in the 2020 general election and 32 percent in the 2020 in the 2021 general. Maywood has 75 percent of voters turnout in uh, 2020 and 41 percent in 2021. So. Um, the Maywood special election in February had a 15.7% voter turnout. So less than 16% of voters turned out in Maywood and South Tom's River. Now, different states have different approaches to breaking ties that offer an immediate resolution to the election. Seven states, including New York, break ties with a coin toss. Three states, not surprisingly, Nevada is in this group, use a deck of cards to determine the election winner. South Dakota once used a single hand of poker. Several states draw straws. Florida allows election officials to pick a game of chance. One recent tie was settled in a two-tier event. A coin flip allowed one candidate to pick first from a bag filled with numbered ping-pong balls. See, that's cool. Now I can understand why so many people are moving to Florida. The candidate who drew the highest number was certified as the winner of the election. When candidates for the Ocala, Florida City Council tied in 2012, officials considered a game of rock, paper, scissors. That would be my choice. 
because I feel like there's a level of strategy in rock, paper, scissors as well. When a state legislative race that would determine party control of the Virginia legislature ended in a tie in 2018, so that's a pretty significant race, officials drew the name of one candidate from a ceramic bowl. So while ties in New Jersey are rare, close races aren't. In 2019, just three votes separated the two candidates for mayor of Sayreville, and the East Rutherford mayoral race was won by five votes. Vince Mazio ousted a Republican assemblyman in 2013 by 40 votes. Tom Kane was elected governor in 1981 by a mere 1,6677 votes out of more than 2.3 million votes cast. An 1844 race for Congress in New Jersey was decided by 16 votes in a race that was eventually decided by the House after one candidate challenged the legality of 36 votes cast by Princeton University students who came from other districts and states. Um, what do you think? How do you think they should break ties in New Jersey? Or elsewhere. What do you think? 800-848-WABC. We're going to talk with Michael Harrison uh, in just a bit. One tie-breaking option, unlikely to win much support, would be the method used by former New Jersey Supreme Court Justice John Wallace during the congressional redistricting place process. He simply went with the party that lost the previous vote. <laughs> he actually did that. That is how the district lines got picked for next year's for this year's elections. He just picked the party that lost the previous vote. Under the Wallace doctrine, Maywood would still have flipped Republican, but the South Tom's River seat would have gone to the Democrats. What say you? Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. You can also comment on the Amelia Earhart thing. Hey, uh, Matt Blaze, I saw you looking at the images of Irene Bowen and uh, Amelia Earhart. What was your take? Of, of looking at the images of Irene Bowen and oh, uh, I, maybe I, you were looking at something else. You weren't uh, looking at those images. No. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. My take about about whether they're the same person. Um, I did see the images, not when you saw them. All right. So, do you want to um, offer an opinion, or it could be, it could be the same person. They look alike. All right. Did you think they look alike? I I think they look exactly alike. Yeah. I don't doubt it because. At that at that time, so many years ago, anything is possible. Philippe, do you have a uh, do you have a, a voice to add to this? I think a lot of people look alike. I mean, I bump into people who I think is me on the street like every other day. So you think they're you? I mean, like I know they're not, but well, the, well there's that Twilight Zone episode where the guy runs into yeah, his double true. at that bus Maybe stop. They are me. Yeah, I never uh, thought about it. Heaven like forbid, heaven forbid. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. If you want to comment on how to break ties in the case of an election, why New Jersey has no statute, or my discussion with uh, Todd Swindell about Amelia Earhart, we're going to have other experts on in the run up to May twentieth, the anniversary of her disappearance, that have different theories as well. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Al is in Kennefly, New Jersey. Hello, Al. Hey, Frank. Hi. You know, Hi. I look forward to Todd's uh, book on Amir Documentary. Hart. It's a documentary. However, the documentary, rather. And however, 
Amelia Earhart's husband was the famous and very wealthy publisher, G.P. Putnam. His company today is called Penguin Putnam, very successful uh, publishing company. Anyway, um, in all fairness to, uh, uh, again, the theory of uh, Todd and his uh, upcoming documentary, uh, G.P. Putnam himself financed that very flight. And he has been into, was interviewed many, many times about this. And he, his testimony and his feeling was that, unfortunately for Amelia, she was interned by the Japanese and did not survive that. Hmm. And hmm. that the, any, any parties back here in the States who uh, claimed to be Amelia, he refuted. And that was G.P. Putnam, her very husband, who financed her flights. Yeah, well, that is another theory, uh, that she was interned by the Japanese. And uh, we're going to have some folks on that subscribe to that as well. Thanks, Al. 800-848-WABC. Uh, Tony is in Florida. Hello, Tony. Hi, Frank. It's really nice speaking with you this morning. Likewise. Um, I don't buy this gentleman's theory because... Uh, for two reasons. One is because it's so convoluted and the truth generally is simple. And secondly, I know that he made at best half truths. Like when he talked about how that there was communication on the radio, there was in a sense, she was on the wrong frequency. So the traffic controller could hear her, but she couldn't hear him. And this went on for a while where, you know, he he kept switching his channel, but she never even thought of that. But he could never get her to hear him. He stepped outside and he could hear her plane in the distance go by the island too far away for her to see it. But he could hear the engines. Um, Another thing is this this woman that supposedly disappeared just when she needed to be disappearing. Right. So that Amelia could take her place. Yeah, I agree. That does sound very suspicious, which is why I I had many questions about that. Yeah, because that means that they would have had a killer. Or or Um, or that she disappeared some other method. You know. And but yes, you're right. The the absence of explanation of her disappearance, I agree, is very conspicuous. And she and her husband loved each other very, very much. And they thrived on the attention that she would get. He was her PR guy. He would get the bookings and the TV and radio presentations, and she loved having an audience. And as far as looking like the other woman, she had a very distinctive voice, face, and body. And I can't imagine none of this other woman's friends or family jumped up and said, hey, this this is not our friend or family. This is an imposter, you know, because no matter how much somebody looks alike, they don't they don't have the same mannerisms or voice. Well, and just the opposite happened because there were people that knew both Amelia Earhart 
and Irene Bolam that because, you know, they were both pilots. They knew knew one another. And folks spoke out and said, no, this is not Amelia Earhart. So now, again, the one fella that recognized Irene Bolam at that initial meeting for retired pilots said he immediately thought that it was Amelia Earhart. Other mutual friends of both of them said the exact opposite. So that's a that's a fair point, Tony. Yeah. And he mentioned that up in two years after her disappearance, they were getting uh, reports that she was alive and well, you know, like tips or something. Well, everybody knows that when you have like a hotline safe or a murder, sure. you get 5,000 bogus tips, If you know, and most of the time you don't get any good ones. Just because somebody said something doesn't mean it's true. Yeah, that's... That's true. That's true, yeah. Tony. Uh, Tony, I, I have to run. Let me try and squeeze in one more call here before we get to um, before we get to Michael Harrison from Talkers. Uh, Richard is in Parsippany. Hello, Richard. Yeah. Hi, Frank. Um, yeah. You know, uh, uh, this guy with his theory, absolutely preposterous, absolutely preposterous. Amelia Earhart stumbled on the United States military in operations against Japan where they weren't supposed to be. And this was 1937. During the 1930s, everyone in this country was concerned about these scumbags in in Washington wanting to get us involved in uh, going against the Axis in Europe. The people of this country said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. When Roosevelt ran, he said, I have heard, I have heard you, and we will not ever right. get So, involved. Richard, what you think happened is the government offed her because she stumbled upon this military base? Of course, that would ruined that would that would have ruined their whole Pearl Harbor scam. They were trying to put they were involved in on those islands. The United States military was blockading Japan. They were involved in combat on these various Japanese islands and nobody knew about it. Uh, Thank you, Richard. I I have to run just because uh, I want to make sure we have some time for Michael Harrison. Those of you that are holding, if you want to continue to hold, you're welcome to. Otherwise, um, you know, call back later if you like. This is the other side of midnight. Uh, Michael Harrison, founder and publisher of Talkers. Straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. I've not only been involved in the world of talk radio for a long time, I've been a fan of talk radio for even longer. And it's funny, the people that work in talk radio, the people that are listen to talk radio, the people that are advocates of talk radio, it's almost like even if we've never met one another, we're a little family, a delightful little fraternity. And I, I'm pleased my guest this morning and uh, good morrow, everyone. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. My guest is somebody who has been probably radio, especially talk radio's 
biggest advocate, biggest defender, biggest champion, and I don't think there's any doubt about it, it's greatest expert. It is my great pleasure. And on a personal note, he's somebody that has been incredibly encouraging uh, for my career and incredibly nurturing of my love of this medium and has been uh, an incredible influence since I was 18 years old on uh, my decision to pursue this professionally and has helped me every step of the way. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome the founder and publisher of Talkers, Michael Harrison. Michael, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. It's my pleasure. It's my honor. And Frank, thank you for those kind words. Uh, You have done a tremendous job with your career and the sky's the limit. I think you're I think you're still on the runway about to take off and look how far you've come already. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Now, for people that haven't heard our previous conversations or for people that may not be familiar with Talkers or your professional journey, I know you were an air talent, including here in New York. And long before you were a rock star or a journalist covering the medium of radio, you were a participant in it. Explain to me how you made the transition from being an air talent to writing about radio. Well, I've always been both. <laughs> the reason I write about radio is I I, I didn't want to have my career um, be totally uh, dominated by the other trade magazines. So I decided to write my own columns and write my own opinions and start my own trade magazines. So um, I have actually done radio shows in one way or another where I either had a syndicated show, a job at a radio station, um, a combination of both nonstop for 54 years years. During that time, I have um, I was one of the founding um, editors of Radio and Records, which was a major trade. I um, uh, was a editorial columnist and chart consultant for Billboard magazine. I published a, a tip sheet for the rock radio industry called Good Phone Weekly, and I've been publishing talkers for the last 32 years. But during that time, I do radio shows as well. So I never transitioned from mm. Um, from from talent to print, I just did both of them. My bigger transition was going from rock radio to talk radio because mm. uh, I once was as active and as um, I hate to use the word influential, but let's just say opinionated and sure. followers uh, in the rock radio realm as I have been for the last several decades in talk. And um, for the last, by the way, if people aren't familiar with talkers, every obviously everybody in the business is familiar with talkers, but some people in the audience at large may not be as familiar with talkers. What is talkers? And it's, and it's a great daily email. I read it every day. I used to really enjoy the big oversized magazines, but I still check talkers.com every day. What is talkers? Talkers is a trade publication. Talkers is to uh, to talk media. We call it talk media now because it's not just radio. It includes podcasting and television and satellite and all that. Talk shows, talk shows in the media. It's a trade publication very uh, for that medium, very much the way Variety is for show business and film or uh, Billboard is for the music business or Women's Wear Daily is for the garment industry. It, it's, a, it's a journal that's published for professionals in the industry, not necessarily for fans or customers. However, because there are so many people interested in radio and so many of the listeners of talk radio are participants in it, either as callers or they're into podcasting now, or they just love to know what's going uh, on behind the scenes. We have a tremendous readership around the English speaking world um, that are listeners, 
But um, our our target audience, our our focus is on professionals in the business. Mm. Over the last 32 years, not only has the world of publishing changed a great deal, but the world of radio has changed a great deal. Uh, 32 years ago, there was really no such thing as as podcasting. It was considered a major novelty to even be able to find an email address or a website for your favorite host or your favorite DJ. I'm wondering if you can describe a little bit how the worlds of publishing and radio have changed over the three decades, more than three decades that you've been doing this. I'll tell you, so you you said before, once upon a time, Talkers was a full color, big, glossy magazine, you know, in Mm. print. And uh, it transitioned to where we don't even have a print uh, component anymore. It it became, frankly, a nuisance. Everybody that's in our industry, they don't care how pretty the the print publication is. They want the information. So now we're 24-7 around the clock news organization and, and a views organization and a promotional organization. I mean, those are all the things a trade publication does. We even do an annual convention, which we've been doing for for decades. And um, so we've changed with the advent of the digital era. As far as radio is concerned, radio, television, motion pictures, newspapers, magazines, all of these media that are rooted in the 20th century have had to go through an incredible transformation into the 21st century. Now we're, we're 22 years into the 21st century, so it's it's hardly a novelty anymore. And uh, a lot of the culture and artifacts of the 20th century are sort of fading over the horizon, and we're we're out to ocean. You know, we're out we're out of sight of land, uh, even though most of the people listening to this broadcast are immigrants from the 20th century here in this strange new world. Um, It's a multi-platform. It's the advent of the media station. Radio stations are on multi-platforms, but they're audio-oriented. Television stations now, my gosh, has the TV industry changed? Um, They now stream. They're all these you know, strange networks that you have to follow on your smart uh, TV. We're all getting used to that pattern. Um, And, um, you know, we just had the Oscars and we don't even know what a motion picture is anymore. What the heck is a movie? What's the difference between a movie and a TV show now? Um, Because of the, the, the fact that the movie theater is no longer the big screen bastion of the experience of seeing something cinematic. So um, the changes are what we would call a sea change. And I'll tell you, Frank, they're just starting. Um, can't go home again. Where we've been ain't where we're going. And, um, you know, as smart as I may think I am or you smart, you think you are doing it every day and being part of it. Most of us don't really have a clue where this is going to wind up. I, you know, I think the fact that you, you talk about how those very formally, firmly delineated differences between motion picture, television, radio, um, new media, mobile, uh, mobile media, how those are all becoming blurred and it's difficult to tell one ends and one begins. I think that might be one of the contributing factors to why the Academy Award ceremony itself has diminished in attendance and popularity or ratings. Each 
each and every year. Now, the reason everyone's talking about it this year is because of this Will Smith incident with with Chris Rock. And to me, it underscores why live anything, television, radio, theater is so exciting because unpredictable things like this can happen. What was your take on the incident with Will Smith and Chris Rock? I think it was a thank goodness for the Oscars that it happened <laughs> because nobody's talking about the movies. <laughs> I think most people couldn't even tell you what, what movie won or, or what actor or director won, although Will Smith, you know, people are talking about him. So it was a, you know, celebrity gossip. That's what it comes under to me. Celebrity gossip is always interesting. I mean, no matter what the medium, if there's a good celebrity gossip story, it will always work itself to the front of the pack. There could be a war going on. There could be, you know, pandemics and crime in the streets and all kinds of, you know, problems, economic problems, inflation. But, you know, somebody slaps another guy, two stars, and um, uh, it's over a wife and uh, insulting someone. Oh, my gosh, that's great copy. It's always been that way. So um, back to answer your question, um, the uh, the Will Smith, uh, Chris Rock uh, brouhaha could have happened at any time in history. Uh, fortunately for the Academy Awards and the Oscars and that whole trip, uh, it happened this year because it gave it gave us all something to talk about. Now, in the world of talk radio, I feel like this sort of thing happens much more regularly than what folks that follow uh, the A-listers of Hollywood might be used to seeing. Uh, the, the two incidents that come to mind most immediately is on the Howard Stern show, A.J. Benza punching uh, Stuttering John. But also, I remember in California, uh, there was a gubernatorial candidate that spit up on Brian Whitman. But even going back a number of years, I could certainly picture George and Morton Downey Jr. mixing it up, maybe in a physical altercation. Can you think of any other talk radio incidents that fall into this realm of the, the slap heard around the world? Well, I, I was once uh, in a feud with Wally George. <laughs> I, well, tell me I about was, that. I didn't I, know I, that, actually. I was, car- I was the program director and uh, did a, uh, a talk show on the top rock station in Los Angeles, KMET, uh, for 11 years. And during that time, uh, Wally George was running his TV show on a small station in Orange County, which was ultra conservative with the American flag and, you know, uh, you know God bless America and anybody who um, played rock and roll was a devil-worshipping hippie and uh, destroying society. And so uh, he invited me to be on his show, and I was very snarky, <laughs> stood up to him and, and laughed at the audience. And uh, he had the police guards carry me off the stage, which is what they did for people that he couldn't handle. But, you know, there was a nod and a wink between us. And so sure. I, inv- I invited him to my KMET talk show. And because it's the theater of the mind, um, and and we were wildly, um, uh, we were just crazy back then. You know, you talk about Howard Stern and all that. It was in in those days to be anti-establishment and to thumb your nose at the man, as long as you didn't say dirty words that were too, you know, too racy and get you fined. And um, I created a whole scenario after Wally George had left the show. I mean, talk about a bad boy. I'm embarrassed by this, but I, it, it kind of answers your question. It was a talk show. He left the show after the first hour. I had a two-hour show. And then I created a scenario that he was still there and that he was beating me up and threw me through the plate glass window. 
of uh, uh, and, and the glasses crashing. He's listening to this, driving home horrified that I, I made him sound like this this mental case. And it people thought it was real. It was one of the, it was like a an, an Orson Welles, you know, War of the Worlds it. thing. Oh, I love and it. The, and the L.A. Times did a big story on it, and and the rumor went around that Wally George had thrown me through the plate glass window, which was uh, not if- true. If there's still an air, if there's an air check of that anywhere, I would love to hear that. My goodness! One of the problems uh, people, is there are no air checks of ninety percent of, yeah. of radio and television were, were lost because we didn't have a clue that there was a long tail and uh, on demand and podcasts and replays available. We used to think it goes out into the air and that's the end of it. Right. And if there was any kind of a of a, a, a memorialized recording of a show, television or radio, the tape, the videotape or the audio tape was considered more valuable to be reused than the actual um, documentation of these art forms. I mean, do you realize how many Tonight Shows with Johnny Carson are gone forever? And uh, uh, my friend Joe Franklin uh, hosted some of the most iconic performers in history on his Channel 9 show in New York back in the day. And Mm -hmm. those shows were all just taped over. And yes. uh, it's really it's an incredible thing to think about. There was no thought of archiving uh, any of this stuff. It's uh, so interesting. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Michael Harrison. He is, uh, in addition to being a, a tr- tremendous on-air talent in his own right, we'll talk about his podcast in a minute, how you could hear it. He's also the founder and publisher of Talkers, which you can check out at talkers.com. You can also subscribe to the daily uh, email that everybody that works in radio gets. And if you want to be in the know, you should subscribe as well. You know, it's funny, the thing that I've noticed with radio stations around the country is there seems to be an increasing migration to che- treating these these platforms as multimedia content providers, not necessarily radio stations, not just the big talk stations, but the big music stations as well. They view themselves as a one-stop shop for podcasts, for video, for radio, whatever the case may be. Do you think in the era that we're living in now, keeping in mind what everything you said about the merging between television, motion pictures, radio, etc., do you think radio is still relevant as radio these days? Yes, I still think it's relevant. I don't know if it'll still be relevant in 20 years. Um, I don't know, you know, because the human the human species, our brains are be, our nervous systems, our brains are being re- rewired by the way we communicate. So we may find radio someday as quaint as the idea of vaudeville uh, today. But no, I still think for at least 20 years and maybe more, the idea of radio, or you could um, objectively describe it as audio media. Mm-hmm. Uh, but radio is magical audio media. <laughs> radio means a show. It means it, it, it has a cultural connotation that like like Louis Armstrong said, if you don't know what jazz is, I can't explain it to you. If a person doesn't know what I mean by radio, what you mean by radio in a cultural context, it's very hard to describe to someone who says, well, it's all audio to us. Well, it is audio, but radio is an art form, is an audio art form. Um, I do I do believe it's going to be around for a while because when done properly, it's just so damn good. 
and 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 as long as there are guys, the young guys like you still doing it, and um, uh, radio owners like John Katsimatidis, who's revived WABC, um, it's going to be around for a long time. In the bigger picture, though, I don't know. I mean, things change. The you know, uh, neuroplasticity of the human brain. Sure, we we change, and I don't know what our grandchildren are going to be like. Uh, so. But for now, radio is is here to stay for the foreseeable future. You know, it's funny. Twenty years ago, if you would have said that um, vinyl records would be having their biggest year in decades in 2022, I think folks would have said you were you were smoking something. And I, I'm wondering, you know, we've seen a comeback driven primarily by young people of all sorts of older technology. We're seeing a comeback of vinyl records. We're seeing a comeback of film cameras. We're seeing in, in some quarters a comeback of uh, uh, old-fashioned manual typewriters, and there there are some media like theater which have never seemed to go out of style, which uh, just keep to seem to keep getting better and better. Why do you think radio hasn't enjoyed that same degree? And I'm, when I say radio, I mean good old-fashioned over-the-air uh, tuning a radio, radio battling through the static to discover a station that you never knew existed that you get clearly one night dependent upon the weather. Why? Why do you think old-fashioned radio technology hasn't enjoyed the same sort of Gen Z neo-nostalgia that some of those other media that I referenced have? What a great question. And uh, maybe because radio still is current and it's tech, it, it, it's like saying, how come old time cars, you know, are not big on the road? Well, they are, but they have special license plates called antique and people don't take them out for more than a mile mm. a month. Um, I, I, I think I, I see records as tchotchkes. I, I, I see, you know, they're sort of like hurricane lamps. A lot of people have them in their home and they light candles and they, you know, they do things like like that, but we're not going back to the candle. We're not going back to the hurricane lamp. Um, radio is is more of a frontline technology, and it's changed over the years um, gradually. It didn't just go from staticky AM to you know what we have today, uh, which is hard to describe uh, overnight. It went through the AM to FM migration. It went from the mono to the uh, hi-fi. A lot of people may not remember the difference between hi-fi and regular monaural, and then it went to stereo, and um, you know now we have head buds, uh, earbuds rather. Uh, so I, I think there's a difference. I think that radio is a different animal than. Uh, tchotchke <laughs> vinyl records. In other words, I understand that vinyl is back and that a lot of the younger generation are getting a kick out of these things, but I don't see these things making a comeback and being current again, whereas radio is still fighting to be current. Um, I don't know. Beyond that, I mean, how interesting is it listening to a staticky old radio? Uh, you know, do you do you want to listen to a to static on a radio? On a radio, I, I, I'll tell you, I, I, fu 
I find the most of the listening that I do, even though I think I have 13 or 14 radios in my home, I find most of the listening that I do is still via smart speaker or app. But uh, when I take in a car or take a car into work or something that doesn't have my presets on it, there's still something I love about pressing that scan button and discovering a voice uh, that I didn't expect to discover because it's coming in from somewhere like Buffalo or Canada or wherever else. I got a letter recently from somebody in England that said they happened to hear me on 770 over the air in England on one particular night. And they actually sent me a recording and it was actually much more, much more audible than I ever dreamed we could be across the pond. So I, uh, I totally get uh, both, both tr- uh, schools of thought. Now, uh, one of the things Talkers does do is it, it publishes the Talkers 100. I was very humbled to be included for the first time last year. No doubt about, I, I, I think the fact that when he was alive, the top dog in the field of talk radio was Rush Limbaugh. And when he was on terrestrial radio and had the ratings that people could only dream of, I think uh, a strong case could be made that uh, the top dog was Howard Stern. Um, These days, if people are looking for this generation of talk radios, Michael Jordan or Mickey Mantle, who is it? Who's the top dog when it comes to talk radio these days? Well, I mean, our heavy hundred, uh, number one, at least the last one, the new one's coming out in a couple of weeks, and I really am not at liberty to say who it'll be, but the number one host is um, one that may not necessarily be uh, where you are, is Sean Hannity. And um, he's on uh, a tremendous number of stations, and uh, people like Dave Ramsey, Mark uh, Levin, Glenn Beck is still popular. Um, and, and then you have a whole bunch of new ones that are vying for that, you know, coveted noon to three. Eastern time slot that Rush Limbaugh had, you know, to be the new the mm. new Rush Limbaugh, and there's a list of them. Um, there, there is. We're sort of like in the realm of rock and roll after Buddy Holly died. Before and Elvis Presley went off to the to the to the army. Buddy Holly died. Um, Jerry Lee Lewis was 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 persona non grata because he married his his cousin who was an underage child. Um, little Richard went off and, and became a priest. Bill Haley and the Comets ran out of material. And we had Frankie Avalon and we had uh, Fabian and, and, you know, Bobby Rydell. And then all of a sudden the Beatles came and a whole new thing happened. We're sort of in a period right now where there is no Howard Stern or Rush Limbaugh, which is not to take away from all the wonderful talent that's out there. But Talent, trends go where the talent lies, and talent is never a given. It's never a given that there's going to be a Tiger Woods in, in, in golf. Um, it, it's, there's no given that there's going to be a Mike Tyson in, in, in boxing. Sure. Um, and, and so we, I don't think there's anybody out there right now that we could say is the 800-pound gorilla, which in many ways is good because it gives new guys uh, the opportunity. I personally think you're heading toward um, uh, heights that I cannot even begin to imagine. Right. But, I mean, anything could happen. You're only human and, and – and, you know, the human events go in ways we don't always know. But well, that's what I think. Thank you. Uh, one question that I get asked on literally a daily basis by friends, by colleagues, by listeners, I'm sure you've gotten asked it many more times uh, than I have over the years, is why is talk radio 
primarily conservative. There are a lot of great progressive uh, talk show hosts, folks like Tom Hartman uh, these days, folks like, uh, you know, on a lot of Pacifica stations, my friend Ralph Nader. Uh, formerly, you had folks like uh, Lynn Samuels and the great Alan Combs, who I know was a, a good friend of both of ours and a collaborator of yours. Why is talk radio, though, why does it seem that the folks that have had the monstrous biggest success tend to be on the right side of the political spectrum? Well, it goes back to a, a comment I made earlier. The trends go where the talent lies. Um, you, British rock and roll became big because the Beatles were great. It wasn't that there was suddenly a need to even things out between American and British rock. Um, the trends go where the talent lies, and there have been some tremendous talent that came out of the conservative end of talk radio. Um, but I would actually say that conservative talk radio is gigantic, and not that talk radio is primarily conservative, because I view talk radio from a bigger picture. I view talk radio as, as people on FM stations, on music stations that do primarily talk shows in the morning and do talk about so sociology and celebrity gossip. I look at public radio as being talk radio, and that's primarily moderate to liberal. Um, so I, I, I and there's, there's also African-American community talk radio, which tends to uh, support Democratic Party politics. So, yes, the big stars, the big buzz, the big influence has been conservative, but there's more to it. One of the reasons, Frank, the conservative talk radio caught on so well is that people who want to listen to conservative opinions on the radio tend to be um, more of a similar mind than the kind of people that might vote for the Democratic Party or consider themselves liberal. It's, in other words, from a standpoint of audience targeting, which is a whole broadcast theory here, um, broadcasting theory, uh, from a standpoint of targeting audiences, it's an easier target to focus on and get in the crosshairs. And so much of today's media is targeting audiences and playing to their already existing beliefs and um, ideology, as opposed to going out there for a mass audience and collecting whatever it is that comes your way. And, um, and that's been an, also a major paradigm change in the, uh, in the radio and television uh, businesses. So um, those are the two reasons. The, the, the other reasons include the fact that when um, uh, the Fairness Doctrine was repealed back in the late 80s and Rush Limbaugh came on the scene and, and talk radio became very opinionated, the Republican Party and the conservatives identified more with the populism the populism that was very popular in radio back in the late 80s and early 90s, and they made relationships and they cultivated relationships with the um, emerging talk show hosts, whereas the Democrats, with a few exceptions in politics, didn't cultivate that type of relationship. And that also set things in a motion um, that um, uh, wound up where we're at today. And the final reason is there hasn't been a lot of conservative media in American popular culture. Hollywood is, is moderate to liberal. Uh, newspapers were mostly moderate to liberal. Movies, well, that's Hollywood. And radio and television, the big ABC, NBC, CBS, you know, Alphabet Soup networks tended to be moderate to liberal. And people who were card-carrying conservatives for decade after decade were marginalized, called right-wing lunatics, wackos, extremists, John Birchers, Ku Klux Klan. I mean, the, the, the worst 
type of um, uh, descriptions. And as a result, they felt marginalized, disenfranchised, alienated. And when talk show hosts on radio started to address them specifically and give them respect, well, they galvanized around it. And um, conservative talk radio had a, had a, a real running start on other forms of talk radio. And that's a strength that exists to this very day. One of the things I've noticed these days is that the same role that talk radio might have played years ago in providing an alternative to the, um, you know, the left of center mainstream on the news. It seems like if there's news that's being censored, whether it's about uh, covid origin theories, whether it's about uh, election fraud theories, whether it's about Hunter Biden and you can't uh, and his laptop, you can't put that out on Twitter. Uh, you can't put it out on Facebook without uh, being flagged or getting a strike against you. Radio is still one of the few places that allows discussions about those types of issues to take place. Do you find that talk radio in the 21st century still plays that pivotal role in terms of being an alternative to the things that you can't say elsewhere? Yes, indeed. And I think it's a key part of its uh, longevity and its um, its continued pertinence. One of the reasons that um, social media has leaned toward the left and been particularly critical of the right in terms of its bias and its censorship, which, by the way, it has the right to do uh, because only the government um, were only protected from uh, for free speech by um, in, you know intrusion of the government. Private industry can do whatever it wants. One of the reasons that we're seeing a, um, a left bias in social media is because big tech, Silicon Valley, is primarily run by left-leaning um, ideologues, um, whereas radio is run by corporate America or a remaining number of individual families or smaller groups that tend to be not necessarily conservative, but tend to be sensitive to existing markets and playing to them and not letting bias get in the way. Rush Limbaugh rose to popularity uh, at a time when most radio stations before the consolidation and it became so corporatized, Rush Limbaugh gained his five, six hundred affiliates primarily on stations owned by liberals. Uh, many of them sold since then, and uh, they're now corporate. But these liberals would tell me during that time that, uh, hey, I, I don't agree with the thing the guy says, but he's getting us ratings and he's making us money. So God bless him. <laughs> that, that You don't see that as much, I, I guess, today. Uh. It's true. It's true. Um, you know, I um, I see that. Uh, by the way, I could talk with you about radio all day long. I remember about 20 years ago or so, maybe a little more, you were doing appearances all over the country as the lone liberal, almost as a lone ranger style, um, mm -hmm. you know, left of center talk show host. Um, what was the modus operandi? What was the motivation for the creation of the lone liberal character? If in fact it was you, I know his true identity was never unmasked. And uh, what happened to the lone liberal? It was me. Um, I did it for pure um, entertainment and um, and fun. Uh, as a matter of fact, when the lone liberal appeared places, he wore a mask and a hat and, 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 and he, he dressed as a workman. He had the flashlight of truth, the lunchbox of labor. And it basically was a spoof on left-right politics. 
it it was not a uh, a mission of politics. It was a mission of radio entertainment, and it was around the time when we started to notice that. Um, Conservatives are dominating talk radio, and there aren't that many liberals in news talk radio. So I figured I'd have some fun with this, and um, I created a character that it wasn't just liberal politics. Sometimes he was very, very conservative. It was my way of playing with a lot of the standardized inside-the-box thinking that goes on into today's political talk radio. The reason I stopped was two reasons. One, he became so popular, the lone liberal, and I was asked to be on so many shows that I didn't have the time to do my real job, which was publishing Mm -hmm. talkers and my other stuff. And the other reason was that a lot of people took me seriously when they found out I was the lone liberal and said I hate and and categorized me as a liberal. Aha, we know you're a liberal. And one of the keys to my career has been never to allow myself to be pigeonholed. So I just Ah. stopped it cold. I didn't I I have no desire to be a liberal or a conservative or to be political. I viewed it as a showman having fun. And and it was very, very successful. As I said, I had to stop because I had to make a career choice. Am I going to be the lone liberal the rest of my life and and be misunderstood or um, or or what so um, thank you for remembering because I thought it was one of the most fun things I've ever done oh I loved it I loved it as a listener it was uh, it was terrific now uh, these days I still subscribe to podcasts uh, the Michael Harrison rap and uh, the Michael Harrison interview podcast I've been fortunate enough to be a guest on both you also have a lot of fascinating people on both of those Um, why do a podcast as you said and as the listeners can tell it's not as if you don't have enough to do putting together live events, organizing uh, podcasts on talkers.com, covering radio, doing appearances on shows like this one. Why go that extra mile to do a podcast, actually multiple podcasts as well? Because I can. (laughs) I mean, why not? I love this stuff. Uh, And as long as I'm able to do it and there's a a market for it, why not? A more specific reason, the Michael Harrison rap is a radio show that is also a podcast, but it's also on the radio and around 70 or 80 stations around the country and the UK. So it gives me a chance to do a one hour radio show with a lot of short form interviews, commentaries and uh, uh, short discussions. The Michael Harrison uh, interview gives me a chance to do long form interviews that, you know, maybe on a show like yours that's on, you know, the glorious after midnight time where you could do an interview like this and get into depth. But for the most part, radio shows, you know, you're fighting the clock to work your way to the break. So I, I love the long form interviews as well. And that's why I do it. I love it. I'm a big fan. I encourage people to subscribe. Uh, You can search it on whatever podcast platform you have. Just search Michael Harrison. Both come up. Or you can just go to talkers.com. There are some links to it up there. Michael, uh, we've talked a while, but it never seems like there's enough time whenever we're together. I'll look forward to our next conversation. Thank you, Frank. It's been a pleasure to be with you. And if you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. 
This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Thanks for listening. So, um, you have no idea the amount of stress in our household right now due to um, the upcoming baptism of my son uh, because. It's May 1st, and so my wife was doing all sorts of calculations. All right, so if we agree to do that venue, then we have to get, order the invitations today. We have to have them rushed here right away, and then we have to send them out right away. That's only going to leave people a week, a week of having these invitations before they have to RSVP because we have to give the venue a final count two weeks before. And she said, all right, fine, we'll do it. But that means um, you need to... Text, we're inviting. We had a, a list of folks that we agreed upon. Text everyone we're inviting and give them a heads up that this is the date, May 1st. And I did that. Texted everybody on the list. Fine. Okay, good. And I text my cousin Liz. And now Liz has a married name now, but. You know, she was always Liz Morano, right? So she's in my phone. I mean, no, actually, she's not. She's under her married name now. Um, She's in my phone as her married name. But for whatever reason, I still think of her as Liz Morano. Now, I... Send her a message. Oh, da, 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 this is what we're doing. And, you know, make sure you tell your mom. Unbeknownst to me, I accidentally send it to my stepmother, whose name is Liz Morano. Now, I don't want to get into too much with family drama or anything, but my stepmother and my cousin Liz, they're, you know, they're not on the best of terms right now. I mean, it's a, I'm sure it's a temporary thing. Like any family, everybody gets over stuff now. So I sent my stepmother a text message intended for my cousin. And my stepmother just texts me back. I think you sent this to me in error. And I said, Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, that was meant to be for cousin Liz. And my stepmother, Liz didn't respond. And I got the sense, she didn't say anything, but I got the sense that, I don't know, she was a little annoyed that I sent her a text message meant for someone else, even though you could understand how that happens. There was no, and because I've done this before, and before when I've done it, Liz, my stepmother, texted me back, oh, sure, you know, I understand, no, you know, no problem, you know, uh, something like that. When I did this yesterday, there was no response. So you didn't think she was a little perturbed. I've done it the other way, too. I've texted my cousin intending to send messages for my stepmother. So I've done that both ways. And it's it's a little embarrassing, especially if you are texting people that know one another. Now, I am curious how prevalent this is, because I've done this with people. Uh, is when you send someone a text message intended for one person and it's actually intended for another. Now, sometimes it's harmless. Sometimes it's very harmful. Sometimes you send a text message to someone and 
it's meant for someone else. Right? Yeah, I did that within my first week of working here. It was um, really embarrassing. I sent a text message about a meeting that I'd had with our president, Chad. I, I had meant to send it to someone else. And I said, oh, Chad doesn't seem like he's eager to blank. And instead, I sent it to Chad. Now, you can imagine, what a way to make a first impression, right? So I sent this text message. I had intended to send it to Curtis. And instead, I sent it to Chad. Now, Chad freaks out. Now, actually, he was very calm. But the next day, he calls me. And, you know, he said, you know, who are you meaning to send this text message to? And so this happens to me a lot. You know why? Because I'm going so fast. And with different things and going so fast. And that a lot of times, I don't know, my phone is not going as fast as I'm going. So I'm curious if this has ever happened with you. 800-848-9222. You know what I notice it's most prevalent? Not with me, but say Curtis, for instance, and really other people too, is when you're on a group text with someone and then they respond to you because you were the last response on the group text thinking they're only writing to you, not realizing they're writing to everybody in the group text. Curtis was the worst with this. I remember what would happen when Curtis and I were in the leadership of the um, New York State Reform Party was – you know, Curtis and I would be texting with, say, a candidate or whatever. I remember one specific incident. Um, I'm not going to mention the candidate because it's immaterial here. But we would be texting with a candidate about scheduling his interview for his endorsement and so forth. And then Curtis had something that he wanted to send to me. And he responded on the group text. And he revealed some information in the group text that he shouldn't have. That we didn't want, wouldn't have wanted that other candidate to know. So I'm curious if you've had an experience where you've sent the wrong text message to someone. I j- those are three occasions off the top of my head. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. That is one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Tell me, I- I've done this a number of other times, and it's always embarrassing. Always. 800-848-WABC. Let me begin with Mike in Bayside. Hello, Mike. Hey, Frank. Um, Well, first of all, I want to say that I saw Curtis on Saturday here at the Bayside St. Patrick's Day Parade, and I asked him when he's going to lay off you and and your baby. And he said, oh, my God, that kid is 38 pounds. (laughs) I don't know what he's feeding Carmine. I'm going to call ACS. So, you know, just, uh, you know, watch out for him, man. I don't know. Anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, I had a really good friend, Rich. He um, he was a brilliant, brilliant guy. And uh, he, he was very troubled, though. And uh, eventually his demons caught up with him and he passed away a year or so ago. But he taught me a bunch of really good songs to play on the jukebox. He was a little older than me, so he knew a lot of music I didn't know. And um, I, what I used to do is, like, I'd play one of the songs, like, I'm in the Bronx, and I would text him, and I'd say, hey, Rich, I'm playing Brenton Woods in the Bronx. Uh, 
Anyway, I, I played him the other night. Uh, I, I played one of the songs that he had taught me. And I, you know, I was missing him and thinking of him. And I texted him because uh, he's still on my phone. And I got a text back and it said, this isn't rich. Uh, and and I, I, so I said, oh, my God, they reassigned the number, you know. Uh, so I texted them back and I just briefly explained why I'd done that. And they said, oh, that's beautiful. You can text this number anytime you want. Oh, well, that's nice. So it worked out well. I thought it was sweet. Yeah. Yeah. That's always tricky. Also, when someone changes numbers as well, uh, because, you know, I've done that with my cousin, Andrea. There's this one person that keeps getting calls and text messages for my, uh, you know, my cousin Andrea, and right. and it's not her. That's always tricky. But it doesn't sa- it sounded like it was not embarrassing at all. In your case, it sounded like it worked out well there. Yeah, I, I, I you know, it, it sort of reaffirmed my faith in human nature. Oh well, that's nice. nice. That's nice. <laughs> uh, I I've done it and had people not necessarily react the best. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Have you ever sent a text message intended for one person? And it went to another person. 800-848-WABC. That is the question. A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. You know, it can be very dangerous. And this happened to me a few times in my single days. If you are dating more than one woman. Right. Uh, And you're setting up dates with different women. Sometimes you might say something to somebody and different things might be sent to other people. That's why you've got to be very, very careful with your Lisa's and Danielle's and a lot of girls that have the same name. You got to be careful in uh, in that respect. But you got to be careful. That's the thing. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Curious if that has ever happened to you. I remember on Curb Your Enthusiasm, they did a whole thing about this where it's it's strategic sending the wrong text message to people. You know, send, they call it sending an accidental text message on purpose. It was a very funny episode and it worked well, at least for a time, for the characters in that episode. But uh, unfortunately, the reality is too often you think of a person, I'm thinking of Chad, and let me pull up Chad's number and send him this text message. Oh, I'm thinking about Chad. And then you say something about Chad. Has that ever happened to you? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. Charlie in Bayside. Hello. Oh, wow. I'm first. Hi, Frank. Well, how are you? second, but yes. Don't even bother answering. You know how that goes. <laughs> I was sitting in my living room. My wife is sitting in the kitchen. There's a wall between us. We can't see each other. I'm texting, and I know you're going to hate this. I think I, I just went right into a text that I thought was already there from before to my girlfriend. And I wrote, honey, I don't think I can take you to work tomorrow. My wife's got the car. Next thing I know, I hear a ding in the kitchen, and I hear her say, I knew it. And I went, oh, crap. I just texted. I just outed my girlfriend to my wife myself. That's very funny. So, credit card bill. How did your wife react to that? Oh, well, she had a suspicion, but I kept schmoozing it. And she just said, I knew it. And I walked in there and I was like my head down between my tail, my head between my, my tail between my legs. And I just went, no, that wasn't what you think. 
a girlfriend of mine needs a ride. <laughs> what'd you call her, honey? I call everybody honey. That's not you. Uh, so uh, like, uh-huh, there's no way you're uh-huh. still married, are you? We are basically roommates at this point. Oh, all right. Well, I'm hey, hey out to, as we speak, I, I'm packing stuff all week. Uh, that that's very funny. Uh, they kicked me out, though. This was mutual. Mutual. I'm gone. Uh, well, I, I I hear you, Charlie. Yeah. That's why I needed the girlfriend. Um, <laughs> I hear you. Thanks, Charlie. Kevin in New Jersey, what do you have for you? For hey, good morning. Hey, I, th- I think what you're talking about happens more often than you think. Yeah, no, it happens constantly. Yeah, it happens to me all the time because if you're talking smack about somebody, you want to say something funny about somebody else. That person's on your mind, and you subconsciously right. dial the right thing. But it's not it's not unique to you. It happens continuously. People embarrass themselves. I'm positive. Well, give me give me one instance where it's happened to you. Oh my God, it's happened all the time. I couldn't even give you that. <laughs> it's it's four in the morning. I couldn't give you one instance. It just it just struck me funny that you brought it up. Yeah, uh, and Larry and the Larry David thing is always funny. It's yeah, yeah, you remember? In fact, here's the clip of that Curb Your Enthusiasm episode. I pick up a knife. I haven't heard to stab. Well, I don't but think it's that's a, a stupid uh, thing to say at a dinner table. So and then you I made thought... such a deal over the <laughs> filter. Terrible water. But, but you didn't have to say anything about it. Hey, how, how could you not comment on water? That's no. so bad. Okay, like I've done everything I can to get her back. I sent her flowers. Boom. Shredded on my doorstep. I mean, I don't know what to do. Oh! Oh! You ready to hear? Accidental text on purpose. Oh, my God. Tell him. Okay, here's what you do. You send me a text, but you accidentally send it to her on purpose. And in the text, you say something like, hey, Larry, you were an the other night there's nothing wrong with our water it's perfectly okay say anything you want curse me anything i don't care okay i've, I've never said this to you before yeah you're brilliant <laughs> thank, right. you. Yeah. Right. thank you yeah. i invented this so i invented this. You did it for me dear larry i can say anything i want anything larry you were so out of line the other night about the water yes if marilyn didn't throw you out i would have perfect damn it he's had some bad luck today all right, there we go. Oh, that's Here nice. it comes. All right. Hey, what do you like? Uh, four. So that is that is uh, from that episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, and it works well for a time. It's funny. I just searched my text messages, just the words wrong text, 20 different messages that I've sent from November of 2019 have come up with me or someone that I'm corresponding with saying wrong text. Can you imagine? So I do this pretty regularly. Do you? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC-PETE. Son, Staten Island. Hello, Pete. Hey, Frank. I messed up with a text. I got a guy, a friend of mine. Well, so-called friend of mine. It's now eight years. He won't talk to me. Um, he made it in the music business when he turned like 62, and he's very successful. So my nephew was, you know, doing stuff in the music business, and I sent him a text that 
my friend originally sent me, you know, and I said to give him hope. I said, my friend made it at 62 in the music business. You still have a chance. You're in your 50s, you know, and he got nuts. He's like, why did you send that text? I says, I was trying to give somebody a little encouragement, you know, and now you may. And to this day, it's about six years. He doesn't talk to me. He don't respond to anything. And I said, ah, good riddance. What are you going to do? It was a mistake, but no, the embarrassment, just like you said. So I'm, I'm glad you brought it up on the show because it made me think about it. Yeah, uh, it's, it's such a shame to see that friendship ended over that. Right. That same friend, he left his wife and he didn't tell me that he needed a ride, uh, a ride to the new uh, Great Kills train station. So next, you know, he's throwing garbage bags in my car. I go, what are you doing? He goes, I'm leaving. And he left. He left on Christmas Eve. That was like uh, five or oh, uh, seven years ago, a year prior. You know, and I thought we were, you know, thought we were friends, you know. And the wife came out yelling, what are you doing? Taking my husband. Oh, yes, he was for a ride to the train station. I didn't know he was leaving. <laughs> and the, the great world, the great kills. That's, it only happens in great kills like it only happens in Vegas. That is very funny. Thank you, Pete. 800-848-WABC. Joe is in Ron Kunkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Uh, before I get into it, uh, that... Uh, uh, interview you did with about Marie um, Amelia Earhart was uh, fabulous. Thank you. So was great. Um, it happened to me twice the text message. Once involving my wife, I was getting her a gift, and a friend of hers was helping me get this gift because I, you know, women they have like particular purses and jewelry. So this person and I wrote back, "Thank you, you're one in a million. I'll never forget you." And instead of sending it to her, I sent it to my wife. Oh, boy. Exactly. And then when my wife got the gift. But then another incident, I do do landscaping on the side. So a friend referred me to a person. So I was doing his one for three years. And evidently, this other house I was going to, the house was much easier to do. So I gave them a better price. Instead of sending that price quote, to the new person, I sent it to my buddy, and he got like Pete from Staten Island. Uh, he stole my thunder on that one. Uh, I haven't spoken to this person. Oh, jeez! Yeah. Isn't that the worst? See, that's those yeah. are the 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 pitfalls of modern day text uh, uh, text message yeah. technology. That yeah. is. Have a great night. Thank you, Joe. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two. Two two. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Have you ever sent a text message intended for one person to another? Was it ever particularly embarrassing, or did worse happen? I just talked to two guys that lost friends over it. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Janet's in Manhattan. Hello, Janet. Oh, hi, Frank. Yes, I wanted to turn you on to a very funny song on this subject, on, on something like this anyway. Have you heard of Christine Lavin? Are you familiar with her work? Uh, you know, the name sounds familiar, but I, I can't pinpoint her music. She's a very moment. good singer, and she writes a very funny satirical song. She's got one on baseball that's very cute. But she's got one on this subject about what do you do when you have two or three boyfriends, and you want to make sure you don't make a mistake on the name, especially at a crucial moment, you know, where mm-hmm. we Mm-hmm. She said, I never call my sweetie by his name. I call him sweetie, honey, sugar, <laughs> baby. She never uses the name. Yeah. She only calls him, you know, she calls him names that if she slips and says the wrong one, it won't matter. That's very funny. I like that. Them. That's a good strategy. It's, it's, it's a 
very cute song. You take a listen to it sometimes. You yeah. know, thank you, uh, Janet. I never did that because, you know, once, I, you know, I would date multiple women, but not, you know, I would never get to a point where I had a serious relationship with with a woman and and then still be dating other women. So, you know, I would go on a date or two with a woman. Okay, you go to a date or two with another woman. You know, you, you maybe end up with a friend if nothing happens romantically. But I, I would never get to a point where I would give them a nickname like Honey or Sweetie because I think you got to be pre- – in, in my case anyway, uh, you got to be pretty close to uh, a, a romantic partner before you start calling them Honey or Sweetie. You know, I mean, that if you only date a girl twice and you're already calling her honey or sweetie, I mean, that's that's a little weird. And then if you're dating her for four or five months when you've achieved honey or sweetie level, then, I mean, I think it's pretty wrong to still be gallivanting with these other women. 800-848-9222. You ever send a text message to someone intended for someone else? What were the ramifications? 800-848-WABC. David is in Fort Lee, New Jersey. Hello. How are you, Frank? You tell me, David. Can you hear? Can you hear me, Frank? I hear you perfectly. Very good, very good. Yeah, unfortunately, I was having a romantic conversation with my girlfriend, mm. and I sent an X-rated text to my mother. Oh, that is oh, gotta my. be the worst. It was unbelievable, and you know, well, the next day I said, "Oh my, that was uh, wasn't meant for you." <laughs> well, did your mother respond to that text? She did not. I responded in the morning. And what did she say when you said that wasn't meant for you? She made she made like she didn't even read it. All right. Well, that see that's that's good. That's why moms are so great for stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. But could you imagine what Biden can do if I could do that? <laughs> I guarantee you, nobody. I guarantee you nobody that has any influence around Biden is letting him anywhere near a cell phone. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. There's no telling what this guy would do if he got his hands on a cell phone. Forget about it. Thank you, uh, David. I don't mean to call the president this guy. He is the president trying to, you know, I want to give him the proper respect. But come on, let's face it. You could tell he wouldn't know who he's texting. Again, I don't want to um, pick on President Biden, but... He's lost a step or two off his fastball, uh, putting it putting it mildly, I think. All right, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. That's 1-800-848-WABC. So I was talking to you yesterday about this lady that called Curtis over the weekend uh, bashing me. And lo and behold, that same lady calls Dominic Carter this morning, right before our show. This is what this lunatic says. But it's Frank Morano. He always blames <laughs> Republicans. He always gives Democrats a pass. You, you really, you re- hey, Lisa, wait, wait, wait. You really believe that Frank Morano is, is one of the most professional people that I have ever worked with in this sure. business? Yes, he gives them a pass and he attacks Trump. He hates Trump. We know that. He's a leftist radically. Um, wait, Frank Morano is? <laughs> please. He, he he will never blame de- Democrats or Joe Biden. Never. He's easy on them. <laughs> well, well, he always hey, blames Republicans. Hey, but, hey, Lisa, so so Frank is in the control room right and now. Ego. And, and he's a and, lawyer. So there you have it. I'm a leftist radical. 
There you have it. Hey, she found me out. She found me out. I tried to uh, evade this for a while. I tried to avoid getting caught for a while. So much so, I ended up voting for Trump twice and contributing to him in two campaigns. But it was all camouflage to hide my true leftist radical roots of being a Trump hater. That woman has been at this for so many years. Eight years ago, um, I found audio recently of her calling Joe Piscopo, calling me a Jew hater. So back then I was a Jew hater. Now I'm a Trump hater. It's whatever group she likes. Clearly, she's got an issue with me. I don't know whatever he did to her. But whatever group she likes, that's who I'm against. But ultimately, I'm just glad she's still listening to the station. Right? Let her be critical. But let her be one of the many, many people who's still listening to the radio station. 800-848-9222. Uh, by the way, I, I I told Sid Rosenberg he should stop in if he gets in early. Last night was his first night sleeping in his new house. He has moved to Queens. So I'm interested to see how that has, plan, ha, has panned out for Mr. Sid Rosenberg. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll check in with him if he's got time to say hello to us. And uh, we're going to do a $1,000 minute in just a minute. Hey, we have a pretty exciting consolation prize. So if you don't get the 1000 then... Oh, by the way, Philippe, this lady just called you just now? Oh, she called you 15 times. What did she say? All night she's been calling nonstop. That same lady? Same lady. She calls in. Her First off, her phone is extremely static. I know. It's really and annoying. She doesn't uh, let me even get a word off. I'm asking if she wants to talk on air, air out her grievances. Uh, but she it, it sounds like a recording almost where she doesn't take any pauses in breath, just continues through my suggestions and continues. Every call is different, too. One call, you're a misogynist. The other call, you're a racist. The other one, you're a pervert. Each one's different. So at least she has variety in her instance. Absolutely. Now, is there any reason given for my misogyny, racism, or perversion? I, I try to reason with her or get anything out of her. I'm uh, a master interrogator, but she's just unbreakable. <laughs> there you have it. Well, and now I've been exposed not only as a leftist radical, but as a misogynist, a racist, and a pervert. You know, usually if you're a leftist radical, you're not also usually a misogynist. Now, it can happen. But it's not usually the case, but whatever the case may be. Well, I'm just grateful that she's still listening. Thank you uh, to whatever your name is. And I'm glad that we're able to bring a little bit of joy to your life. Happy to do it. Now, I was about to say, um, in just a minute, we're going to give someone a chance to win $1,000 by answering 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. However, the consolation prize that we're going to give away you're going to have a choice of a pair of tickets at the Palladium Times Square, right here in Manhattan, of Tommy James on May 7th or June 3rd, The Rascals and the Monkeys. That's pretty cool. I'm a big fan of all three of these groups, actually. So I'm. Uh, if you want to win a pair of these tickets and you want to try to also win $1000 you can win you could see Tommy James on May 7th in Times Square 
or you can see Felix Cavalieri's Rascals and Mickey Dolan's of the Monkeys on June 3rd. Pair of tickets to the Palladium Times Square. So don't don't participate in the game if you're not available on at least one of those dates, because that's the consolation prize. All right. If you want to play, be the seventh caller to 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Time to see if we can give away $1,000 because it's time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Moreno. Contestant Donna on Staten Island. Hello, Donna. Hi, can you hear me? I hear you perfectly, Donna. What, okay. Why are you That's awake great. this early? Um, I usually get up to listen to you around 3 o'clock. Wonderful. Well, why aren't you getting up at 1 o'clock to listen to me? You're missing a lot of good stuff. Uh, <laughs> I'll try tomorrow. There you go. That's all we <laughs> asked, Donna. All right. Um, so have you heard this contest before? Yes, I have. I'm familiar. And oh. you okay, yeah, you're breaking up a little bit, Donna. So make sure oh, you're in. I'm going to take you. I'm take you. Could you hear me better? Yeah, there you go. That's much better, I think. I'll keep out. All right. Um, what neighborhood do you live in, by the way? Westerly. Westerly. Okay, a beautiful neighborhood. A lot of great old houses. Yeah, there. yeah. Hi, right. neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm not in Westerly, but it is a great neighborhood. Now. Um, all right. The timer is going to begin after I ask the first question. And um, if you get one right or you get questions right, I'm just going to move on to the next one so that we can run through all these. OK. OK. All right. Ready to go. Yes, I am. I, I am nervous about this phone here, uh, but uh, d- d- we'll see what happens, Donna. Hopefully you don't cut out on us. All right. Can you hear me, though? Yeah, but me. it's like it's it's like there's occasional interference. All right. We'll do the best we can. All right. How many cents are in a dollar? 100. Who slapped Chris Rock at the Academy Awards? Will Smith. What upcoming Christian holiday usually involves bunnies and eggs? Easter. What is the last name of the WABC personality named Rita? Cosby. What country is the Taj Mahal located in? India? Which natural disaster is measured with a Richter scale? Earthquake. What is Superman's birth name? Um. Uh, <laughs> Starts with K. Starts with K. Um, Krypton, 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 something, Krypt, Krypt, Kryptonite. Uh, unfortunately not, uh, Donna. It is Kalel. Kalel. Oh, that's, okay. That was good. Okay. All right. You did well, though. You got up to question seven. All right. We're going to give you a pair of tickets to see either Tommy James 
or Mickey Dolans of the Monkees and Felix Cavalieri of the Rascals, okay? Yes, thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to put you on hold, Donna. Give uh, Philippe your information. Thank you. By the way, if people want to buy those tickets um, or any of the other great upcoming shows at the Palladium Times Square, you can go to the website, palladiumtimesquare.com. Uh, There's all sorts of information about the venue. Uh, they're also available. Tickets for all shows are available at ticketmaster.com or by phone at the Palladium box office. And uh, if you use the promo code radio on the Ticketmaster page when you buy tickets, you'll unlock a special discount. So uh, that's thanks to our good friends over at Baker Concerts. Uh, it's a great venue from what it looks like, uh, Palladium Times Square, based on the pictures. I don't think I've ever seen a show there, but uh, it's certainly a very convenient location. It's, uh, it's certainly, I'm going to see if I can maybe get sh- tickets to this Tommy James show. I uh, I love Tommy James. He's been a guest on the show. Uh, I'm a big fan of Tommy James. I like the Monkees, too, but uh, Tommy James is great. I mean, you look at all the great songs that he's had over the years. I mean, how many other great artists like him can you identify their songs just by playing one note? I mean, first word, first note of Crimson and Clover, you know exactly what you're listening to. First note of um, Crystal Blue Persuasion. Um, there are so many great Tommy James songs. So many great. Hey, you know what? Um, I'm going to see if we can um, do this. Yeah, we can. Okay. We're going to do this. We're going to give away another pair of these tickets. But we're going to do something really fun today. I used to do this every week when I was uh, doing a weekly radio show. I did this for years. And then it kind of got a little boring it, it kind of ran its course the way Stump Frank did on this show. You know, you can only keep up these bits for so long before they get repetitive and before you run out of fun things. But what I used to do every week on the radio is play a song, play someone singing who's best known for something other than singing. Uh, for instance, uh, it, like Deion Sanders, right? Best known for being an athlete, a football player and a baseball player. I'd play one of his songs. And the first person to identify it as Deion Sanders would win a prize. So I think we're going to bring that back. We used to call it Mystery Singer. The one night only, we'll bring it back. Maybe we'll do this all week. If you can identify the person singing in this song that we've co- connected, uh, Selected. This is a pretty easy song, actually, and a pretty distinctive voice. So I think everyone's going to get it. We're going to give you a pair of tickets to either Tommy James on May 7th or the Rascals and the Monkees on June 3rd at the Palladium Times Square. So I'm going to play this for you. And if you think you know it, call us at 800-848-9222. And the first person to get it right, we're going to give the tickets to. Okay? Sound fair? All right. Um, Let me hear that music, Matt. What do you do when your love is away? Does it worry you too? How do you feel by the end of the day? Are you sad because you're all alone? Who is it? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. Let me hear a little more, Matt. Oh, I get by with a little help from my friends. Yes, I get high with a little help from my friends. Oh, I'm going to try with a little help from my friends. This is an easy one. Who do you think it is? 800-848-WABC. Winner will get a pair of tickets to see either Tommy James 
and the Shondells or Felix Cavalieri's The Rascals and Mickey Dolan's of the Monkeys at Palladium Times Square. 800-848-9222 if you think you know the answer. Frank in Lodi. Hello. Hello. How you doing there, Frank? I am doing just fine. I'm hoping you get the right answer. Um, I'll give it a whirl. I'll give it a try. Who is it? Frank? Yeah, Frank, who is it? Yeah. Oh, who is what? All right, Frank, thank you. Mike in Pennsylvania, any guesses? George Burns, no guess, George Burns. Yeah, that is absolutely right. That was an easy one. Maybe if we do this again tomorrow, we'll pick somebody a little tougher. Uh, Mike, I'm going to put you on hold. Uh, You want these tickets? Of course. All right, good. I want the tickets. Good. Who are you going to pick, Tommy James or the Rascals and the Monkeys? The rascals and the monkeys, All of right. course. I'm putting you on hold. I like this guy. Uh, Mike, give um, give Philippe your information. Congratulations to Mike. That was easy. Let's hear it again. Now that you know it's George Burns. How do you feel by the end of the day? Are you sad because you're all alone? Oh, I get by with a little help from my friend. Yes, I get high with a little help from my friends. Oh, I'm going to try with a little help from my friends. Would you believe in a love at first sight? Yes, I'm certain that it happens all the time. See, that it was an easy one. Shame on me for giving a clue so easy. So be it. 800-848-9222. Um, you know, I've been avoiding going to Joe in the Bronx all show because... He has a tendency to say things that are occasionally white supremacist or anti-Semitic. And he uh, also filibusters. And he also speaks without taking a breath. Um, So he's not my favorite caller. But I feel like we owe him something for being on hold for three hours. So we'll let him say his piece on Ukraine. Joseph in the Bronx. Hello. Well, uh, first of all, Frank, I don't want you to feel too bad. Uh, because I wasn't listening the entire three hours. I did kind of fall asleep. I mean, you do have the beneficial effect on me of having a sedative uh, effect, and uh, you help me do uh, fall asleep uh, when I do have insomnia. So I love it, Joe. Don't uh, feel too bad. All right, what do you okay? want to say? All right, now, with regard to Ukraine, uh, you definitely have to understand that the reason why we are in this mess ultimately is because of the neoconservatives, people like Victoria Newland, People like Tony Blinken and company, the same ilk of the people that got us into involved in the Iraq war back in 2003. Again, these people are hell bent on having a unipolar U.S. dominated world that does not recognize rising powers like Russia, China, etc. in their own regions. Now, Russia is well within its rights to want to have security in the Ukraine and not have NATO bases with missiles pointed at Moscow, St. Petersburg, etc. The same way during the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy was well within his rights to deny the Soviet Union the ability to have Russian missiles, well, at that point, Soviet missiles, in Cuba, Cuba pointed at Miami, New York, etc., in the Caribbean. Because we had something called the Monroe Doctrine. The Monroe Doctrine states, for those who don't know, that the United States is going to carry the ball with regard to foreign policy in the Western Hemisphere. And that's been in effect 
for over 200 years. So why is it so unreasonable that Vladimir Putin cannot have the same doctrine with regard to Ukraine, which is right on the doorstep? Of the Russian Federation. Right, I mean, but this is nothing that I and half dozen other guests that have been on the show and, have okay. also well, said. One, one, one final thing, one final thing. Now, with regard, to the, with regard to the neoconservative ideology, I know a lot of people are not terribly familiar with it, but there's one excellent resource I want to point in your, uh, the audience uh, in the direction of. It's the book, The Culture of Critique by Dr. Kevin McDonald. It goes not only into neoconservatism, it goes into all the critical race theory, mass immigration, all these ideologies on the left that are hell-bent on destroying Western civilization and the United States as a traditional republic. And I think that it will be very helpful to analyze that neoconservative All ideology. right. Well, thank you, Joe. Um, you said your piece there. There you go. You're arguing with a point that I never made. So, I mean, um, whatever. 800-848-WABC. Rick is in Port Jefferson. Hello, Rick. Hey, Frank and Roy. Um, awesome show. Thank you. By the way, um, got a little bit of trivia for you. Um, in 1982, I mean, I'm sorry, 1981, um, Ozzy Osbourne recorded uh, his album, Blizzard of Oz, with Randy Rhodes, the guitar player who died in 1982, at the Palladium. Oh, really? Oh, I had no yeah. idea about that. Yeah, if you look on the back of the album, there's a picture of the stage of uh, of uh, Ozzy and, uh, and, a, and a pretty decent picture of Randy Rhodes down in the corner. But um, it's a great album, and it was recorded there at that at that uh, at that venue. That's interesting. I had no idea. I appreciate that, Rick. You got it. All right. Thanks. Thank thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight W A B C. Sid Rosenberg has arrived. I'm not sure if he's going to pop in. He looks pretty busy. Uh, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame coming up a little later, probably in about 10 minutes. If you want to call in on anything else that we've covered, you're welcome to. Um, by the way, if you are planning to listen to the Bernie and Sid show, you know who's going to be their guests. If they're going to be on from 6 to 10. They have Sarah Palin coming on today in the uh, in the 8 o'clock hour. Sarah Palin, who... Some people are talking about as a candidate for Congress up in Alaska. Can you imagine her in the same House of Representatives as Marjorie Taylor Greene and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Can you imagine? It'd be wild. Well, she's going to be on at 840. Uh, Bo Deedle is going to be on as well. And it's a great show. Um, Carmine didn't want to go to sleep when I came home yesterday, so I got to listen to um, about three full hours of the Bernie and Sid show. I always listen to the beginning, uh, but I don't always get in three hours. It really, it is one of the best morning shows we've ever had. And I have been following the WABC morning shows for years, and we've had some good ones and some not so good ones. I produced the morning show, the Curtis and Kuby show, and um, I thought that was a great show too. But uh, what they've done with Bernie and Sid, it's just great. It's just great. You know, it's funny. I was thinking, I don't know why. But I was very young when I started producing the Bernie and Sid show, and I was very eager to please. Not the Bernie and Sid show, the uh, the Curtis and Kuby show. I was very eager to please, and I was especially eager to please Curtis and Ron. And Ron especially was always so generous with us, right? He would always, um, when it came to Christmas, he would always give a very generous cash bonus, right? 
And Iran had money. He could do that. And those guys both made a lot of money at that time. And I always felt bad because I wanted to give Ron uh, something really nice come Christmas time or some of these other holidays. And um, but, you know, I really didn't have money. And one year and I, I this is one of the maybe the only gift I've ever given that I kind of regret. But what I had from the time I was a kid it was the first thing I ever purchased with my own money. I had saved up enough money to buy a Mickey Mantle autographed baseball. And about 17 years ago, I said, ah, what the heck, right? Let me be a good Christian and give give a, a, a gift that I know will make someone's day. And I gave it to Ron Kuby 17 years ago, this autographed Mickey Mantle autographed baseball. It's worth an enormous amount of money now. And I got to say, there are days where I do kind of regret giving Ron that gift. Uh, meantime, speaking of WABC Morning Show alumni, Sid Rosenberg is here. Hello, Sid. Am I uh, done already? Done already. No. I'm alumni. I'm finished. No. <laughs> I thought I was hosting the show at you 6 o'clock this morning. You didn't get morning. the memo, I guess. I guess not, no. So no. you guys are having Sarah Palin on today. Yeah, we are. Um, actually, Ron Duguay is a very, very good friend of mine, the former uh-huh. New York Ranger great. And Ronnie Duguay has been with Sarah Palin now for a couple of months. So I spoke to Ron yesterday, and I said, any chance that you'll be with Sarah tomorrow when you're on my show that you could put her on the phone, too? And he screams out. He goes, hey, Sarah, you want to go on with Sid tomorrow? And I hear her go, of course. So, yes, the Ron Duguay connection provides me with both Ron wow. Duguay and Sarah Palin today. No Bernie today. This is uh, oh, just oh, me today. Oh, it's a burning yeah. show. Yes. All right. But, um, well, you do a great job, and there's a, a well, lot of guests you, as thank well. You. Thank um, you. You too. You, you got to ask her, obviously, if she's running for Congress in Alaska. Well, that is that is the, uh, the big question. She did hint at that over the weekend. We played that audio yesterday. So once I get through how many times a day Ronnie Duguay bangs her, which is going to come up. I'm not even kidding you. <laughs> oh, then we'll get to the Congress you, part you and all that good stuff. You don't need to convince me. Yeah. Uh, well, so that'll be fun. I'll look forward to hearing oh, it's that. That's going to be great. Uh, I won't keep you because I know you got to get ready for a solo show for four hours, which I didn't realize. But um, I understand you moved into your new house yesterday. I did, and uh, I just made the trip from, well, I can't really tell you where I am, but uh, from another borough to Manhattan this morning for the first time. And I got picked up at exactly 4.04 a.m. because I'm not sure how long it's going to take to get here. Sure. And I pulled up outside at 4.41 a.m. Uh, I'm already in here with you before 30. 4.50. So 37 minutes. 37 minutes. Uh, $90. <laughs> so I have to budget that into my new you know, my new monthly uh, spending spree. Uh, Going to cost uh, a lot of money, almost $2,000 to day? get here. $90. Yeah. Well, now that you're in the outer boroughs, I mean, those of us in the outer boroughs, we have cars. And we can just drive it. Uh, that's true, but you also have driver's licenses, which ah. I haven't had for about six. I've got fancy cars. My wife drives a Porsche. I own a Lexus. I own a Denali truck. I've got very fancy cars. But no driver's I license. I can't drive them yet. Is that due to some past legal issues? Uh, some past issues, yes. I see. Yes. I see. Yes. All right. Well, that yes. makes sense. Then, <laughs> yeah. Then, um, yeah. Better off. You don't have to worry about parking No, listen, it's like, listen, I'm half asleep anyway. Last thing I want to do is start driving <laughs> at 4 o'clock in the morning. So I hear it's you. a bit costly. But thank God I make a decent living. I'll, I'll be able to figure it out. Wonderful. Wonderful. Are you uh, solo all week or do you not know I don't yet, know. Or? We're going to find out today. Bernie is going to find out if, in fact, he needs more radiation, chemotherapy. He's already had three bouts of it. If he does, he'll be out for the rest of the week again. If not, he could be back as early as tomorrow. So today is a kind of a wait and see thing. We'll see how it goes with Bernard. And hopefully he's back tomorrow. But uh, certainly I'm used to doing these shows if he's not. It sounded like your uh, trip to California went pretty well. It, it was you amazing. You are now full-fledged movie star. I, I 
I have to tell you, it was uh, it was amazing. I again, I, I had done work on the Gravesend television show, shot, scene, uh, shot scenes, as you know, Frank, with Andrew Dice Clay in Miami mm-hmm. last April. Shot scenes oh, in Brooklyn, the great Armand Desante. Yes, right? him too. Uh, and it was it was fun. And I got more of those scenes for Gravesend coming up next month in Brooklyn again. Uh, but that's a TV show. This is completely different. My own trailer, wardrobe people all day, catering food all day, makeup all day. I had some twelve hour shoots. It was a long day, and folks like Emil Hirsch. Lucy Hale, Robert Davi, cool. James Russo, Love Danny Robert A. Davi. He's been a guest on the show. He's, He's great. great. He? He's great. Great singer, too. Big names. I mean, big names. And it was uh, five days of the most surreal, amazing experience. So, for example, Jen Lammers will join me today. The gorgeous Jen Lammers from Extra. On, oh, sure. on TV. Yeah. She's gorgeous. And she's coming on to talk about the Oscar awards and, and Will Smith and, and the whole thing with Chris Rock. And she that said, could be you next year slapping Chris well, Rock. Well, she said, well, forget about those guys. Let's talk about you. You're in three movies and a television show this summer. You're the guy I want to talk about. So she's coming on at 925 this morning. All right. Well, that's uh, that should be some show. going to be spectacular. Sid, it's great to see you. Welcome you back. Too. We missed thank you last you. week. Uh, thank you. I missed you, too. I love you, pal. And you did a great Great Sid Rosenberg impression on the day that Cindy Adams wrote that great column about me and uh, Bernie. That was a good column. Thank you. And I appreciate you taking it with good humor. My man. That was very funny. Thank you, Sid. Thank you. Uh, Listen to shows uh, every morning from 6 to 10 today. It's just Sid Solo. And, uh, of course, you get to hear the WABC early news with Deb Valentine from 5 a.m. until 6 a.m. That's going to be a great show as well. Meantime, you want to be heard for 15 seconds. Now's your opportunity. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. You think I made the wrong decision giving away that Mickey Mantle autographed uh, baseball uh, Matt plays? 100%. Yeah. Uh, So do I. So do I. See, it's funny. 100%. At at the time, I was thinking, you know, look. You, you know, uh, Jesus teaches, at you know, time, giving. At the time, giving, it had to have been a lot of money. It was. It was. And I thought, oh, this is a really great gift. How often can I give a really great gift to someone? And then Ron was still just as much of a pain after that. <laughs> <laughs> as he always it didn't was. even alleviate anything. It didn't do anything. Uh, but he was, he was a nice guy to work with, I will tell you. And um, he was just in Hawaii last week. I was texting with Ron the other day. And he wants to come back on this show, actually. So uh, we'll talk with him. You know, I'm, I'm looking at the prices <laughs> of what you can get for a Mickey Mantle signed autographed baseball now. And, oh, geez. This was a mistake. No doubt about it. All right. 15 seconds of fame straight ahead. 800-848-9222. Frank Marano. 77 I say, now it's your turn for 15 seconds. 800-848-WABC. It's time for you to be heard as part of... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Let me begin with Mark in Westchester. Yes, thank you, Frank. I just want to say how much I love my daughters. 
I know sometimes I can be a bore, but they are my life. I love them every single day. Thank you, Frank. Victor is in Manhattan. In the 1956 film Giant, starring James Dean and Elizabeth Taylor, James Dean became a, a, a multimillionaire overnight after striking oil. Liz Taylor said to him, Chet, you have to understand money isn't everything. Whereby he responded, yeah, that's if you have it. <laughs> 800-848-WABC. Uh, I believe James Dean actually uh, died during the making of that film. A great film, though. Fred is in Yonkers. Hey, Frank. My cousin Tony borrowed my voltmeter because his refrigerator was on the fritz. He brings it back covered with mashed potatoes and gravy. Needless to say, it was revolting. (laughs) 800-848-9222. open lines if you want to jump on board. Normally the lines are all jammed. I don't know if that means I'm extra boring tonight. Many people... Uh, fell asleep like Joe from the Bronx. 800-848-9222. Tom in the Hudson Valley. Yes, Frank. You know, uh, to the Democrats, uh, a crisis at the southern border means not enough voter registration tables set up. That's not bad. Andy on Staten Island. Hey, Frank. Did you listen to my new song yet? I have not. Thank you for the reminder. I will put it on my list for tomorrow. Uh, Billy is in the Bronx. Hello, Billy. Sizzle morons, sizzle morons. <laughs> Bob is in Queens. Hello, Bob. Yeah, Richard Bellhouse Nixon is still alive and Joe Biden is still working. Ha 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 ha. How nice and dandy. On that note, Bob, that slams the lid on things for today. We'll be back at 1 a.m. Tomorrow, uh, we got some exciting things that I'm working on for tomorrow, so stay tuned. You want to know what music we're playing? Join the Facebook group. Just search. Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. Uh, hear the business report that I do as part of the 5 a.m. early news with Deb Valentine straight ahead. This is Frank Morano. Good day. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024.